Welcome to Wing Talk from the INAP Fixed Wing Group. Now here is your host, Steve Schlesinger. Hey, welcome to Wing Talk. I'm your host, Steve, and this is going to be like a fantastic episode. So uh, get the wife and kids up. Let's get the popcorn ready. This is going to be a good show. Uh, we have Tim from Ready Made RC here to talk about the past, present, and future of INAP, well, actually of FPV flying. Um, and so we're going to go through and answer a lot of the questions that a lot of people have um, as to what's going on today. But more, uh, not only that, but going back in history and figuring out how we all got started, uh, what significant changes happened over the last 20 years, and where things are heading in the future. Um, but before we do that, let's introduce the panel. First and foremost, this is, I'm sponsored today, this group is sponsored today by Hair Club for Men, um, and uh, so this is our special hair episode, um, and of course when I talk about hair, people want to know what is going on with Luke, um, because as you may know, during the lockdown, he said he was not shaving and he was not cutting his hair until lockdown was over, and as far as I know, UK has been out of lockdown since June, so we have not seen young Luke since June. And uh, Luke, how are you doing? We want to see what if that 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 buzz cut. I cannot believe you actually got a complete, um, you know, you're like like me, you're like a complete buzz cut going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Complete buzz cut. No, no hair anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not really sure what happened. Yeah, the the UK came out lockdown in June, and it just kind of didn't get cut. So it definitely <laughs> does need to be cut, but it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and, and how much it'll be cut is very much up for debate. So, <laughs> just before the show, Luke let it slip out. He actually has a girlfriend. I, which you know, you look like, um, you know, like uh, Barry Gibbs. So of course you can get the babes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not saying that the, the long hair wasn't anything to do with the girlfriend. So yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, like 1970s rock star going on there. It's really great. Now speaking of people with long hair who look great and fabulous. Um, <laughs> Darren, what's going on with you, man? Um, yeah, everything's good. <laughs> I was a bit late That's in a cool the bar. shirt you're wearing. Oh, it's it's an awesome shirt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there we go. Oh my god! Oh my god! Is that is that that concert shirt? It is that concert shirt that everyone can buy. <laughs> um, wow! But yeah, if anyone in the back? chat knows where the album around? comes from, <laughs> um, leave a note from yeah, about like two thousand. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's a whole on the back. There's like a, a whole thing uh, that has my favorite line. Is, that. You won't see half of it with me. <laughs> oh, it's true. And drinking and loitering is my favorite one on there. It's just kind of like it's supposed to be like a concert tour. So they like have all the different dates and, and songs and stuff like that. And my favorite was drinking and loitering. A mission, which is spelled with one S, I believe. Yeah, there's a slight typo in the first. Yeah, the, the ultra rare first print. Um, whereas an eye missing emissions. <laughs> so, so we've got these shirts, uh, they're online and we don't make any money off them. We just sell them as whether they cost. So, um, so that's the thing, um, Luke, unfortunately didn't get the memo. Um, but, uh, speaking of somebody who did get the memo is Mr. Mark Hoffman. Mark, how are you doing, man? Hey guys. Yeah, I'm doing well. Just came back from, uh, some flying, uh, and some testing. Unfortunately, I had today one of these days, I mean, maybe you know that if 
every small thing you want to do goes wrong and you have to fight through it to get to your target and that was uh one day <laughs> one like these days uh it took me about three hours or so uh, to get just two of my three things done i planned but uh hey i had my first parachute landing with an air uh, with an rc plane today i saw that that sounds pretty cool you actually yeah. you deployed it and it, and it uh, kicked in and you it brought it back in one piece yeah it worked better than expected uh the parachute deployed correctly so i did not mess up the folding and uh yeah the plane is still in one piece luckily that was the clouds <laughs> Yeah, that was the uh, clouds. Currently, my biggest and most expensive plane, so I'm very happy that that worked. <laughs> well, thank you for doing that. So you can t tell us how how to do it and like a nice write up, and then we can kind of pick up from there. Yeah, um, sure. Unfortunately, still no tuning uh, manual tuning video because that was the thing I wasn't able to do anymore <laughs> because everything else took so long. Yeah. Oh, speaking of hair, um, I just want to let you know that this is uh, month one of Rogaine. So every time you tune into Wing Talk, you'll see if the hair is coming back or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, is it minoxidil? You get it at Costco and the big thing of it. And they say when you first buy it, uh, you get rewarded for doing it for about a month. Your hair starts falling out. So, yeah, wonderful. This is the first month. And hopefully by Christmas, I'll look like Luke. Don't they say you have to have it to keep it rather than it starts growing back? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm kind of like, uh, for Mark and I, we're kind of beyond that point right now. So, so you're just being hopeful. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the thing. You guys in the UK can always have that long, beautiful hair. We're just kind of like, uh, we're dealing with what we've got here. Uh, I've got a German background, obviously, so I got the hair falling out. It started about the same time Mark did, too. Anyway, um... Oh, I was going to say that we're working on, I want to thank uh, uh, Darren for his help. Uh, we're working on this whole thing. Um, I have radar, so these little modules, these um, ESP32 modules. Uh, Darren has some fantastic videos on it, but we're going to be breaking down the, the bottom line of how to get this working. The idea is that when you're out flying, you meet up with a group of people. I can tell you this firsthand, when you're out flying, you're trying to get the plane going, and um, you're trying to find each other and it's like i'm over the big oak tree over to the left and you know you when you're flying uh something like a ready-made recruit um ready-made rc recruit you cannot see each other the planes look invisible until you're essentially on top of each other so the idea is to use inar radar which will put out uh using a radio uh, it's a transmitter and receiver in your planes. You can actually keep track of other planes that are also flying IMNAV radar and will tell you where these other people are at as you're flying on your OSD screen. So it's really cool. And um, we're getting into this right now, and I'll be having the whole write up on that. But um, so thanks, Darren, for putting out that video. Uh, there's, uh, I got the, the modules as they, you know, the exact brand and everything. And I have version two, and they said, oh, we don't have the. You know the firmware for that yet yeah, we so i had to get version one until version two is ready mark um you okay with the video uh what do you mean you you look like a nightmare on elm street right now. <laughs> no no everything everything's it's, good it's so. like a youtube video wall isn't it <laughs> <laughs> i'm just I'm, I'm just checking that uh what the chat says and that everything is working correctly here it's so strangely <laughs> pixelated <laughs> yeah so we're Brilliant. going to to uh, talk today uh, to somebody we're really excited to talk to. I really want to thank everybody. 
Um, I was not able to make Wing Talk last week, so thankfully the guys pushed it forward this week. And I said, we're going to get an awesome guest. And then about 45 minutes ago, we couldn't find the awesome guest. So I came up with a new protocol. If we cannot get a guest on and you know, for Wing Talk, with the required time, I need each of you guys to have three beers. And we're going to, every 20 minutes, we're going to crack open a beer. And we're going to keep talking until either the guest shows up or people don't want to watch us anymore. Um, but uh, anyways, Tim thankfully showed up. Tim is with the president and CEO of ReadyMade RC, which is probably one of the most beloved, uh, I would say, companies in FPV world. Uh, this is a company, I mean, there are a lot of companies that sell hobby stuff. One of the few companies that actually says we're about FPV and the one of the first uh, they got into it before it was really a thing. So innovator, leader and everything else as far as the hobby is concerned. And I figured he's a great guest to have on during build month. And most of them, because he not only sells the planes, but he sells all the parts. He deals with all the vendors, such as um, all the transmitter vendors. He deals with all the people who sell the cameras. He deals with people who sell the VTXs. So, you know, this is a guy who can kind of give us an overview of what's going on. Of course, as we record this, uh, there are 100 ships off the coast of Long Beach, California, and about 99 of them have our, all our RC stuff on them. And um, so it's going to be a bleak Christmas for RC hobbies, um, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> uh, until those ships come unpacked. So we're kind of, we'll get into what the supply chain issues are here in the United States. But more importantly, we want to know, we've never had anyone on who can kind of give us the history of FPV as far as um, we had somebody on who, uh, Larry from uh, uh, out of Texas, who w gave us uh, the whole history of FPV back in the 1980s, flying around Dallas um, with a gas FPV plane. It was a really interesting guest to have on, and he did FPV back before with using the technology of the day, really innovative and creative. Um, <clears throat> but when it came to FPV today, um, well, the bottom line is there was a number of significant changes that occurred starting around 2000 and things that you take for granted like brushless motors and 2.4 gigahertz. These things didn't exist uh, back in the late 90s when I first tried to get into RC. So, um, Tim, I really want to thank you for being here today. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, fantastic. So, can you get into that and kind of let us know what what's going on? I want to know about um, brushless motors. What was... <laughs> Did you remember the time when it was brush motors and then it did it switch over to brushless motors and what was the thinking at the time? So, well, so I got into RC, um, it was actually 2005 or six. So I've always loved aviation, but hadn't really done anything. My wife had bought me one of the starter planes from Horizon or, you know, it was one of the cheap uh, starter RC planes. And little did she know what she was getting into when she did that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, like a lot in this hobby, you know, it was just an obsession pretty much right away. But so I started messing around myself uh, almost right away with uh, with like an X10 wireless security camera and a um, you know a camcorder hanging around my neck, looking at uh, what is look back now just absolutely hideous video. But I was just like, oh, this is so cool! I'm flying it through the video. Um, so. So I started, when I started though, uh, 2.4 was really a thing. I mean, the first plane I had was 72 megahertz, um, but um, pretty much everything I had was 2.4 gigahertz, uh, you know, when I started buying regular equipment. And um, 
and same with motors. Uh, that first plane had a brushed motor, but you know, pretty much brushless was everything else that I had. So I didn't really see the transition. I came in right as that that was really all taking hold um, when it comes to the that technology. And same with uh, LiPo lithium. Uh, the the you know uh, the first plane I had had NiCad or nickel metal hydride batteries, but um, pretty much right after that went straight into lithium. And uh, I've only done electric; haven't done any of the gassers of any sort. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, but I immediately went straight to the video. I've got electrical engineering degree and I'm, that's kind of, you know, the, the, that stuff is what's cool to me. So I gravitated to the technology side right away and found there were handfuls of other people out there doing it at the time. It was forums that you'd find some people, uh, uh, getting together and talking about this stuff. And a lot of the people that came out with products early in the hobby were, were, kind of like me, they were just hobbyists that were hacking stuff together, whether it's, you know, random security camera parts or, you know, some of the inexpensive ham video parts and things that existed at the time. Um, and a lot of the early products and, and companies came from people just like that. So um, I was kind of in that group. Some of them had a head start on it uh, before I really got into it. And uh, but, um, you know, the Fat Sharks and Virgin RCs and some of the companies that aren't as popular now as they were then, you know, uh, were really the the ones that uh, were were putting products together at the time. And so, yeah. So I don't know how deep you want to go in the background. You know, I started making pods for some of the the, the little pods for the some of the planes. The Easy Star was real popular back then. Yeah, the original Easy Star, right? Yeah. And uh, so if we were hacking away at that plane to make it perform a little bit better, because it was just a you know rudder control, rudder and elevator control. Um, you know, people were adding ailerons and then obviously the FPV pod to be able to put pan and tilt on it and everything. It's um, the early Bixler or Stratosurfer. It was basically yeah. what that plane is. Yeah, the Stratosurfer was kind of like a revised to make it useful, had a little more room inside. The, the Easy Star didn't have any internals. You had to gut it to cut it open to get anything, any room inside. Um, yeah. Um, and then you know, a lot of planes evolved from that style. You know, the the Stratosurfer, the Pixlers, the that style of plane. Uh, it's really good for FPV. You know, pusher prop. Uh, it's real stable. Um, you know, it's uh, and and you know, and everyone's kind of modified it to make it more what we wanted. You know, the you know bigger wings, aileron control. Um, you know, a lot more room inside. So, um, but yeah. So, you know could go on and on about how things slowly evolved over the years and real products started coming out, you know, versus us just hacking everything together. But, you know. That's yeah, because, you know, like I took a 20 year hiatus. I bought my first Aggie back in the 1990s and it was basically made out of packaging material. And that's an important point we'll be bringing up later when it comes to supply chain. <coughs> Excuse me, uh, that we basically, a lot of stuff that we buy, the fun planes are actually made out of packaging materials that or you know um anyways but what happened was um it was like you said two, 72 megahertz it was it had the nickel cat nicad batteries uh you know the guys say if you take it out and fly you might get three or four minutes of flight out of it if you baby it enough um you know and like one um one amp battery was like forty dollars at the time right and, yeah it you know, weighed like eight or nine ounces. It's probably heavier than a 4S 2200. Right. And um, so this was a four foot plane. 
And I come back in 2016, and I'm, I'm finding planes for $40, and I'm like, no, these things can't fly. And I'm like, oh, my God, these things are amazing. You know, if you spend $60, you get a, that much better plane. And you spend $100, it's unbelievable what you get. So you kind of like, and the brushless motors, and then you had LiPo batteries, and you're like, wow, this is, everything has changed. Everything is very different. And so... But we didn't really know from a lot of the guests we've had on, we've never really known what happened, how this whole started. So it sounds like what you're saying is this was a hobbyist, um, how FPV got started was by hobbyists themselves. And it was just hacking together what the available technology at the time, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, for all that's uh, good about, you know, Facebook groups and everything, you know, back, back then there were forums and I think people gravitated towards very specific forums dedicated to their area. And... There were, um, it was initially, um, and man, I am having a hard time remembering the name of it. Um, oh, the .NET stuff. R RC Cam, I think, was the forum. Um, might even still exist. I'll have to look. But uh, um, where people were just kind of trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And actually, you know, I mentioned 2.4. I forgot we were using 72 megahertz on some of the uh, earlier planes because it handled the interference from the uh, video transmitters a lot better. So I forgot we were actually using, and with certain receivers, you were using the 72 megahertz just because they were uh, more immune to uh, getting interference than 2.4 gigahertz systems, which did not play well with 1.3 gigahertz video uh, at all, um, especially back then. But even now, I don't don't think it's a good idea. But um, yeah, um, I think it was RC Cam was the forum. Um, it was run by uh, Thomas that had the DPCAV website, which is one of the early websites for FPV related stuff. Um, and uh, um, and then RC groups uh, created an FPV section, um, and that was a real big area for people to talk in the early days about stuff as products started to actually come out, real products, uh, not just the hacked together ones. Um, huh. So, so RC people groups making been around. Uh, they've been around since when? About two, you say you were around in 2006. RC groups was I've I just, yeah yeah. Honestly, I feel like they were it was a much bigger place to go to. Um, you know, there was a lot more going on. That was the place, uh, once they took on the FPV forums, it really became, and FPV started to become a little bit more popular. Um, that really was where most of the, the chatter was going on. Um, I think that uh, Facebook, and some of that has kind of taken away there. There's still people going there. There are obviously still people using it, but it's nothing like it was back in the, um, I would say, uh, late 2000s to 2005-ish time frame, um, you know, that was just where most people were going to talk about this stuff. And um, and then there was, uh, uh, pulling a blank now on the other forum, where some FPVers kind of split off because there was, you know, there's always controversy, you know, people were arguing on the RC Group's forum and people got booted off. So, you know, another forum was made for a while for FPV stuff. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's the usual drama and, you know, you have a lot of uh, technically minded people that will tend to think their way is the only way. So, you know, you get a lot of butting heads and, you know, people split off into their own little, little groups of, uh, you know, what they do, do and don't want to do. But, uh, um, yeah, that was really primarily where everyone talked. And it's now now we're seeing, you know, like your group, we're seeing scattered individual groups with narrower subjects um, talking about this stuff. So it's a little harder to for us to just kind of follow and know what 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 necessarily is popular because there might be a whole group that we didn't even hear about that's talking about some new group of products or you know uh, some you know 
Yeah. INAV obviously uh, has, has really grown massively over the past few years. Um, you know, we've been looking at the radar-related stuff here for a few years uh, with you guys, too, um, and uh, kind of helped volunteer some equipment, I know, a few years ago with that. So I'm glad to see that's uh, that's going. Um, yeah, we're about to really start pushing INAV radar here over the next uh, – I think what we're starting to see now, people want to get together in, um, in their communities and find other people to go fly with. But what we need to do is kind of make it, explain how to put it together – also come up with a protocol so that when you show up, you're, you're on the same frequencies, you're not running 915 megahertz and people run, other people running 868 or 400 megahertz or whatever it is. So we kind of give them some ideas as to what to buy, how to put it on. It's about as hard to put on as a GPS. It's, it's basically, it's the same kind of wiring. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, yeah, and I think that's, that's going to be a lot of fun. It's interesting to see that evolution. Um, you know, so FPV started with planes, it was fixed wings, really multi-copters didn't exist except in the very obscure areas uh, initially. And uh, then some of the simple flight controllers with uh, you know analog controls for, uh, for, for your PID controls and everything, um, you were started coming out and that was, that started this new area. And that's the, the multi-rotor, the drone uh, uh, part of FPV is what really gained popularity for the industry as a whole, I think. It, it got a lot of attention. When did that start to happen? Because we're, now we're going we're gonna to switch gears into 2010 to 2020. This is kind of, mm -hmm. you did a good job of explaining kind of like how we came about. And it seems like there were just a bunch of hobbyists who wanted to get together and kind of figure out how to get FEV to work on a plane. Yeah, yeah. But now you're yeah, starting that, to see in 2010 timeframe that you're starting yeah, to see. But, yeah, because uh, I started doing the store full time in 2010, 2011. Um, and it was just within a year or two after that, you started having, um, um, you know, people doing the tricopters and quadcopters. Um, you had uh, David from, uh, where's he live? Up in Northern Europe there. Um, but uh, it was real big with tricopters for a long time. But, you know, obviously FPV fit really well for this, for those. And that started to take off. And I would say that when it, people started doing the racing. Um, I remember we, our first FPV fest, there was some mild level of racing. It's, it was so, you look back and it was so, and that would have been probably 2004, um, I think. And, and it was so cheesy compared to the FPV racing you see now, you know, very, uh, we didn't really know what to do with gates or, you know, how to, you know, how, how accurate people could fly. The, the, the drones were not nearly as high performance. You know, we thought they were really good at the time, but nothing close to what's uh, out now. Um, so that was, I would say 2003, 2004 was where that started to the, the whole concept of racing and drone racing and that style of uh, multi-copter started to really take hold. That's and, interesting because that's a decade before flight controllers came out. So they're flying these things. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a decade off. Sorry. 2013, 2014. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. 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 How about that? Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Sorry. Completely off on that. Um, yeah. What's a, what's a decade among friends, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. So yeah, 2003, 2004. Um, yeah. And uh, so, and then it just was, just a huge rise in popularity. Obviously, you know, it got attention of a lot of people that maybe had no real history or knowledge or, or care about uh, uh, aircraft or or, um, or or any of that side of it. They they liked the racing part of it. So some of these people had no RC experience at all. Some of them maybe came from RC cars and things like that. 
And a huge number of people that really knew nothing about that technology, but saw the cool racing and wanted to get into it. Um, and then we started to see, it took a few years, but then uh, we started to see some of those people starting to look over at planes and like, well, what's up with this? So we, it's an interesting transition. You had people that have only flown multi-rotor that started getting into planes and it's not as easy of a transition, at least not for all of them, as you'd think, you know, the, the, the concepts we'd get people like, where, where's the flight controller? Like, well, you don't need to have a flight controller if you don't want one. They were just baffled by that, you know, that, that, you know, and, uh, um, so, but that, that, that brought a new opportunity. And as, as people get tired of hobbies, you know, they get kind of tired of the multiplayers and fixing them constantly, you know, they, they want to look at these other things. So we started to see a lot more interest in planes. And I think that's, where we've and that's really where INAP started to push in, I think, as well as the, the some of the technology that came from multi-rotor flight controllers and that whole world started to push into right. our world. This was obviously after Eagle Tree had already done their uh, the vector. Oh, yeah, Talk to you about yeah. Eagle Tree and all that stuff. But one thing I want to go back to you is you mentioned that the multi-rotors. Um, so the first <coughs> multi-rotors. <coughs> were based on uh, motors that you got from RC planes, right? So these were yeah, basically yeah. The, the first brushless motors were now being used for multi-rotors, right? Yeah, the, and the earlier, the more popular ones initially were, you know, typically seven, eight inch uh, prop diameters. So your motors tended to be um, lower KV, you know, you're talking seven, 800, 900 KV motors that were definitely a def different format than what we're using now on multi-rotors um, more definitely were plain style motors what we would now consider plain style motors um, and uh, and those were what people were racing with initially the very early racings were being done with these that again they, they didn't they're nothing compared to the performance of the drums now so i could just imagine like but you were you kind of came around to this time when we had the brushed motors were the thing and that was the thing for like elect electric motors probably 20 years so when these right. brushless motors came along, there must have been like, oh, these things are amazing. Plus, you put these LiPo batteries yeah. on them. These are really great. But then you get five or 10 years later, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, these things aren't really good enough. We can really start push this technology more. They burn out too quickly for what we're trying to do. We need something better than this. And that really seems to be where I think one of the big things that's changed over the last five years is the quality of the motors. What you can get for, I mean, the thing I always harken back to is I talked to one of my neighbors and he said, oh, I used to fly RC back in the 1980s. And he was talking about, you know, uh, you spend $300 on a, on a, get, a gas motor and uh, then you would like, you want the $600 one, but then you, you know, instead of going to Hawaii on vacation with the family, you're taking them to, you know, uh, Yosemite or something like that, you know, so you're not going quite as far, you're not doing quite as much. And these are real considerations. And now when you say to somebody, listen, I bought a $60 motor, it's like, oh my God, did you win the lottery? I can't believe that. <laughs> um, I think the, the popularity also caused a lot of competition, right? A lot, of, a lot of companies started producing motors and it definitely pushed the pricing down, even on, uh, you know, in the early days, you know, the, the best motors were coming from Tiger Motor and a few other, just a few manufacturers. And they were much more expensive for what would be the equivalent now, probably at least double the price for the same motors. And there just became a huge amount of competition, um, probably overcompensated a bit. You know, some of the, the really inexpensive lines selling direct from China really pushed the pricing down. 
the performance was there and people were crashing enough that they weren't running into any durability, long-term durability issues because they were usually breaking them themselves before they had a chance to wear out. Um, you know, but um, unless they unless they use racer star motors. <laughs> Mark does not like racer star motors. So, yeah. so, sorry, that, that, that was that yeah. was too easy. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I set you up with that, right? It's a, uh, it, it's you know, and there's and there's been a lot of inexpensive, cheap brands come and go, and a lot of brands that have come and gone. But uh, you know, there's still a lot of the the older school, original, uh, bigger manufacturers that are still making some of the better motors. I think um, so. But yeah, it's just evolved, and uh, you know, and in technology, a lot of it's trial and error. And, you know, and again, there's in, the, in this industry, there was a lot of arguing about what should or shouldn't be better. But a lot of it came down to people just trying things. And you know, it's funny because in multi rotor world, the pantsless motor, you know, no uh, bottom of the case, uh, is nor is the norm. And we, I, we, uh, Kevin, one of my guys, and and I were in China in uh, it was 2004. And we're visiting Tiger Motor, and um, we're like, "Can you make a motor without this? Save some weight?" And they were like, "Oh yeah, maybe." And we, so they, we actually, I think we had the first mainstream multi-rotor motor, but it wasn't the that, that had no bottom on it, but it wasn't the most popular. Like right after that, or not long after that, um, the hype train motor came out, and I think it was pantsless as well. And uh, we're like, oh, they copied us. Of course, you know, it's just how this industry is. Everyone sees something and I do it. I don't, it's not really copying. It's just everyone's trying to do the same thing that works, right? So, and that became a thing. Like, I remember people arguing, saying, oh, it's not going to work. It's going to cause some magnetic, you know, issue with the, the magnetic field that's going to cause it to not be as efficient. And it turns out that they're just so much cooler and lighter that it turned out to be the way to go. And that's how most of this industry has worked. People try things and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And, um, you know, things have evolved and uh, like, and, you know, and motors at the time, I think those motors were probably $30 a pop. And now those same motors, you know, we have more efficient motors, better magnets, better everything across the board, and they might cost 15 to $20, you know, it's a, um, you know, so, but for planes, you know, I, I do think that multi-rotor stuff has helped the planes because some of these motors work out well for a lot of these plane designs. Um, so it turns out that we can now get super cheap motors for our planes. Like you said, you don't need to go buy a $60 motor unless you're buying something huge, um, you know, and, uh, and you can get great performance. So it blows away stuff that was there a few years ago. Mark. I mean, there's also the point uh, that the planes became smaller and smaller and smaller over time. I mean, if you, if you look back, uh, 15 or 20 years uh, or in the 80s as you said before with gasoline in engines you barely had any plane with less than two meter wingspan mm -hmm. and today we have these small things with 250 grams or less and of course the motors are tiny there's not much material not mu not much uh, production effort um, there is some development cost behind it but basically it's only fine tuning on each generation so even the development costs are very low and of course you can now get uh, proper and good motors for small planes for 10 15 euros or even less um, unless if, if you buy if you build a, a bigger craft like just take the uh, the clouds with 1.9 meters then you're back at uh, 50 60 euros for one motor so more than 100 euros for both motors just for this plane and you're back in the in the old uh, price league basically right yeah, definitely the the planes. Yeah, the other than uh, development. Yeah, you know, I think the, the the molded planes have made a huge difference. And again, I came in right as that really started happening. You know, but 
I had a Telemaster Electro and I FPV'd it. It's a, you know, it was a wood, uh, you know, balsa plane. Um, you know, it, it was electric, but, uh, you know, I think it had a, uh, it'd be about a, is it 60 inches? So about a one and a half meter uh, uh, wingspan. Um, and, you know, quite a few bigger planes, but these molded planes have made it easy for people to fly. You don't have to worry about building, which they, you know, they had ARFs as well, but, but um, it's, they're so much easier to fix than those balsa planes always were. Um, and uh, so they've, they've, they've really changed the hobby as well. Darren? Um, I was just going to sort of carry on with the motors in that we've sort of seen a trend now of more expensive motors coming back in with companies like Badass and KO who are producing these high-end motors and are, are actually doing quite well with it again. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a balance of what you want to get out of your model. But yeah, it's, we've got both sides now, so we can pick and choose. It really is a buyer's sort of market at the moment. And yeah, when you were talking about molded, I thought you were meaning those sort of. <laughs> well, that too, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, so, and I think that the, that that correction where there was an, like this race to the bottom with pricing has kind of, some of these less expensive companies have just haven't been able to make it through and now we're getting back to a more normal level of pricing. I mean, you know, there's this always this fine line, right? You got to make enough money to, to keep the business going and the, the race to the bottom is great for consumers, but um, it can burn out the companies that, you know, there's overhead involved and everything, um, especially if you're developing anything new. So, um, so I think, and then, you know, again, yeah, if you're, the higher performance motors are going to cost more, you know, whether it's because of the better magnets, better windings, um, you know, better materials in the windings and so forth. Um, you know, it's higher to tighter tolerances, bearings, the whole thing, right? So, um, yeah, I, I do think it's... If you think about it, though, the, the, you're saying it costs more, but what you can get for $30 today is absolutely stellar. Right. I mean, unbelievable. Right. <clears throat> yeah, we saw uh, $10 the, is good, but, you know, it's like, maybe you skip out on a couple lunches and you can pay for this you're not putting off a vacation in order to pay for this you, you know uh, mark you can say something yeah i mean uh it's it's also very interesting uh if you if you uh look at these different motor quality classes i yeah let, let's call them quality quality levels um what, what i like at the moment is that um depending on on what manufacturer you get you know this is high-end class this is medium this is low budget um there, there is actually no manufacturer right now who uh, offers uh, stuff for any price range i would say i mean if, if you get a ko or a badass you know this is high-end uh, high-end quality uh, you, you don't get a cheap motor from them that might not hold very long if you get a sunny sky or t motor you know okay you have a nice affordable mid-range class motor mid-range to um, t motor has some high-end stuff but usually usually for commercial use not not for private use and uh, then you have uh, manufacturers like we talked about uh, racer star uh, better fpv or whatever and uh, you know if you buy with these brands you get the cheap yeah the bottom stuff uh, you 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 know you would push on a, uh, put on a craft uh, you know you will crash it or you will lose it uh, one day and it's, it's it doesn't matter yeah so. yeah that's right or you don't really know if you like the plane very much yeah exactly exactly you know so this might be the thing you're gonna fly all the time or it might be a shelf queen in three um, couple months so 
that's why you know I'm, what uh, I'm working on a document right now. It's kind of like talking about rebuilding planes and the whole idea about upgrading your plane as you rebuild it. And you know, and the thing that I brought up is plastic servos. I'm talking about that and plastic gear servos are something that are you come with every cheap uh, plane you get out there. You know, and usually I say to people just keep them. You know, fly with them at first and your PMP planes, and when they break, you can replace them. Otherwise, when you want to if this is the plane you love, then you go in and put the Metal Gear servos in, and or the digital Metal, metal Gear servos, and you spend fifteen dollars a servo on that, and you'll be really happy with it. Um, so, sorry, I, one thing I wanted to ask you about was let's get into flight controllers in particular because uh, you say around two thousand twelve, you saw the first flight controllers come in. Yeah, I would say that sounds about right. 2011, 2012, we started seeing, uh, and a lot of those early flight controllers were, again, hobbyists were putting them together, and a lot of them were uh, analog. You know, you were adjusting PIDs with, uh, you know, little uh, with little pots to adjust, uh, you know. Um, so there, it was a different breed initially. Um, I'm pulling a blank on the, the name of the, that early flight controller that was real popular. Um, the CC3D was that Nice. That was that was actually second gen. I would say that would be like the first CC3D is probably first generation of uh, or one of the first generations of the what we would consider more modern like AK32. Yeah, yeah, that type of stuff. Yeah, um, and um, so and and again, it was uh, you know everything was you know you were changing jumpers to change the flight modes or maybe little toggle switches and. Um, yeah, it was a quite a change, you know, but it was new and we were doing it. You know, you could do tricopters, which, you know, were a whole different world with uh, having even the rear uh, to, to rear prop to pivot, the rear motor and prop to pivot. Um, people were experimenting with, with things at the time, what worked, what didn't. And, um, you know, the, the stabilization was not nearly as tight as it is now. You know, as you, were, you were just trying to get it to not shake and, you know, wobble over the place. You know, GPS uh, wasn't really even thought of yet, you know, for position hold or anything like that. Was this um, around the time when the, the, that people were taking apart the nunchucks from the Nintendo Wii in order yes. to get gyros? Yeah, that, that same time frame, all this stuff. And I, it's, yeah, that it's all part of that development. You know, again, everyone in this hobby were, were taking things that weren't intended for what we we wanted them for and using them in our hobby. You looked at those uh, those nunchucks and you're like, well, it's got a, it knows its position. Maybe we can use that. And yeah, people started, uh, uh, you know, and that's and that's the cool thing about having so many people that are into this hobby that are technically inclined to be able to figure that out, right? Um, and you have so many people coming at it from different viewpoints. Some of them are from the networking and programming side of things. Some of them are from the hardware uh, side of things. And with with forums and groups like yours that's where everyone kind of comes together and just figures it all out you know some people from the airframe side of things as well so um yeah it's uh, it's been cool to see that over the years but it just was so fast starting around that time frame where um new things were coming out you know felt like every other week something new came out that made the other one completely obsolete um and, and that was around uh, the time dgi came out with the phantom Yes, and DJ. Well, DJI originally started with flight controllers. You know, they they were wow. selling, they were selling um, their uh, again. Man, my brain must be just a DJI a NASA. Yeah, the NASA. So their NASA came out. They had their little uh, their little uh, four four fifty uh, frames, were like plastic arms and you know little metal a little body with a. I have a three D printed clone here of them. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> and, and it works. Serious. It works well. 
Uh, let me get was, it. That was their thing initially. You know, they they were making those flight controllers, and then they they did the smart thing and decided to make a fully integrated system. Um, but their flight controllers were for a while some of the best. But you know, they also it was new technology, and you were getting flyaways and things like that. You know, and obviously there were people that were like they're horrible. Like, yeah, but there's not much else that's out that's as good. You know, and around that same time, you'd mentioned Eagle Tree as well. Uh, Eagle Tree, which had been doing already been doing like telemetry and and things like that for for some time before that, came out with the uh, add-on for their telemetry for uh, for flight stabilization for planes, and uh, and initially it was not in a fully integrated system. You had to buy separate components. You know, you bought their main unit that had the the power adapter and everything on it, and then you had the the flight stabilization aspect of it, the OSD part of it. Um, trying to remember how that was all pieced together back then when it was separate. Um, you know, and it was just a mesh, nasty, nasty mesh of wires inside your aircraft. So, you know, that's uh, oh yeah, and there you go, yeah. Hey Mark, say so, something. Yeah, that's that's basically the uh, fl uh, flywheel F four or five uh, F four fifty. 3D printed clone. <laughs> oh, wow. Some modifications was... from me, and it, it, it's uh, relative flexy, but it works. So I uh, it flew already with that frame, that that was actually in the air. 3D printed that. It's awesome. And so yeah, DJI's thing right up front is that's what they made, you know, and that's what people were using and kind of making their own stuff. So. They could hold a GoPro right off the bat, right? Yeah, yeah, and GoPros were, you know, that was really GoPro. GoPros were becoming popular around that time, so that kind of tied in directly to at least recording videos. You know, we had these. It was just amazing, beautiful, beautiful 1080p uh, videos. Uh, you know, coming from these things. Um, you know, it was just amazing to be able to record. I just spent hours recording random things from planes and trying to show it to friends of mine who'd look at it like, okay, yeah, I've seen seen two hours of this already. I don't need to see any more. <laughs> Okay, so back to Eagle Tree. That was a company that was really um, so that they were like the forerunner to really what iNav is today. Pretty much, they they came up with the idea of complete flight controller system, and it was not they sold not only the firmware but the actual hardware as well. So it was all in one type of thing, and it was beautifully done. A really great company at the time, and it was very innovative. Around 2014, that came out. That sounds about right. Um, so maybe the OSD Pro was the add, you know, the add-on to their telemetry setup, um, and it tied into their t existing telemetry uh, equipment. So it was multiple parts. But then when they came out with the Vector, which I would guess was probably around 2014, 2015, the Vector kind of made that all integrated, and it was closed source. So it was their their thing. But yeah, you had you know the, the artificial horizon, and you had you know return to home and. And all these things you go in and change settings on. And it was really, yeah, I would agree. It's what iNav has evolved from. You know, iNav seemed to take the best from that and from the, the beta flights and the clean flights and all the various flights. You know, iNav seemed to have taken the best of those two separate worlds and put them together. So now you had Eagle Tree, but open source. And, uh, you know, and... Yeah, you know, and Bill from Eagle Tree was a great guy, you know, that, that uh, started the company. And, you know, he was an ex-Microsoft... Uh, uh, programmer and uh, so again techie person that just uh, took his skills and made all this stuff happen hey darren can you grab one of those eagle tree vectors do you happen to have one handy yeah <laughs> he happens to have a drawer full of them <laughs> just, oh, <it's> really <laughs> there it is right there 
Say something. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought I did. Yeah, yeah, Eagle Tree Vector. About the same sort of size as an F405 wing. So, yeah. And it works great, you know, and I think that uh, the open source stuff had kind of, uh, Eagle Tree seemed to have slowed down development of anything new. So I think, and, you know, and it, you know it's, I don't know if Bill wanted to just retire as well, but uh, I think it just kind of uh, faded away slowly. So, yeah, I think that was the problem. There just weren't really any updates for it. It, it just got to a level, which was a good level, but it mm -hmm. just didn't progress. So there was no integration of newer um, things like Crossfire. You didn't really get telemetry feedback unless you sort of hacked it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a vector in that. This flies great. Yeah. I, I'm sure I still have planes in a shop that are that still have a vector in them because it was my go-to for a long time. So I mean, for for fixed wing, it was the way to go. You know, and iNav in the early days was a little scary, and uh, you know, but uh, um, you know, but I think uh, you know, just any, everything we build now obviously is going to have iNav in it. It's just what the latest thing is to to do now if you want any type of stabilization and and all you know, and flight control and so forth. So. Um, then, okay, so following up on Eagle Tree. So yeah, Eagle Tree, we agree, fantastic. Um, and sorry to see them go. Unfortunately, it's you know, well, it's kind of nice that the consumers once again have an, uh, a less expensive alternative because each one of those Eagle Tree vectors was about three hundred dollars, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, they came down eventually, but yeah, it was probably pretty close to that, especially early on. Uh, HD video, we kind of mentioned a little bit back in the, um, you were talking about putting on the um, GoPros and getting 1080p video flying around, but we started to see some HD video towards around 2019 with the DJI HD system. Um, the there models. actually was, there was, a, um, there was a one or two systems that kind of tried to get into our industry before that. Um, uh, Sky Blue or something like yeah, so, so. Uh, that's one of them. But there was another one that actually they were pr producing drones. I don't know why my memory is so bad today. Um, they had a drone called uh, Falcor, I believe it is. Um, and again, they were pushing no latency. The biggest thing is theirs were did not come integrated with goggles. They were standalone. These were companies that already specialized in uh, HD transmission for the, the filming industry. So they had that behind them and they were making way more money in that industry and they decided to try to get into the FPV industry with it. And it's, you know, the systems were bulky, um, harder to use. You know, you had to set up an actual ground station, which those of us have been doing it forever. That's, we've always used to use ground stations, but you know, um, you had to set up a ground station and, you know, run an HDMI cable to your goggles. Um, and the, and the VTX uh, modules with multiple antennas on them, they were fully cased with some 200, 300, 400 grams of rate. Just oh, yeah. the, yeah. the send uh, transmission module, yeah. Yeah, they were they were heavy, and it was the first foray into that, you know, because for the longest time, people were like, this analog video, it's so bad. You know, it's like, well, it's, it's what we've got. You know, anything HD, you're going to get latency, you're going to get, uh, you know, it's large, so... That was the first sign that we were starting to head towards some some possibilities, and then yeah, DJI coming out with their system is definitely it's still bigger than a lot of the analog stuff, but it's getting definitely getting there, right? It's getting closer and closer. Um, Sharkbite has, I mean, it has the advantage of potentially being small, but I don't think that's really. Uh, you guys tell me your opinion on that, but I'm not seeing a whole lot of interest in Sharkbite personally. 
so I just started with Sharkbite. Uh, I have a full setup here, just not installed yet. I think it will go into the Refex uh, I first. Ask, have you flown it? How, how have you been liking it? <laughs> uh, I, I have flown it in the past uh, okay. fr from and tested uh, with the assistance from some uh, buddies, uh, especially on the FPV event in uh, July. No, August. Oh, in August. Um, the downside was he had the old Sharkbite cameras on there, so the, the very first one, the, the first digital ones, because we had uh, Bite Frost in the beginning with analog cameras, eight analog HD cameras transmitting a di digital signal, totally weird. Um, but yeah, he had Sharkbite with the first digital cameras, but this one here is a, a Foxier HD, wait a second. Uh, Foxier DigiSide uh, V2. The, the interesting yep. thing on this one is it also has an analog output, so you can switch between analog and digital with the same camera. That's really oh. nice. Mm. And yeah, this one will go into uh, into the Refax, so I already know how it looks in reality. It looks really better than the DVRs because the DVRs are basically uh, are converted inside the receiver module to be saved as a video file why dji records just the raw video stream that comes down that's the reason why sharkbite uh, looks worse than uh, dji and uh yeah i will i will see how it goes i just had no time yet uh, to install it Unfortunately, it's only the 200 milliwatt, uh, milliwatt VTX here, uh, but they are working on uh, one watt VTX at the moment, and this will be it will get interesting then, especially for long range stuff. Yeah, I and mean, Rich took me, uh, Rich Adams took me through the whole thing about if you can get into this, you need to get this, you need to get that, you need to get this, and so it seems like it's gonna go some hopefully, but right now there's just a lot of things up in the air still. Um, what do you mean you need this and that? Uh, I mean, you have a VTX, you have a camera, and you have a receiver module. That's Luke. it. It's the same like analog. We had a problem. Luke, what's going on? Oh, uh, the chat isn't working the YouTube video stream for some reason. Oh, okay. Oh, no. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let me refresh it. <laughs> okay. No problem. Yeah, I mean, Thank you. From my point of view, I'm still on the fence with digital. I'm still happy with analog. Um, yeah. I'm just waiting for more companies to come in with HD and you know push each other because DJI, yeah, it's a nice picture, everything, but for me the OSD is not there. And with Sharkbite, mm. it's you know it's still a work in progress a little bit, and the canvas mode isn't properly integrated into iNav, so there's there's still room for improvement with all of them, I think, and it'll be nice to see if other companies come in as well where they take it. So I might get something next year, but at the moment I'm still quite happy with analog, to be honest. Yeah, I think I've been lucky enough still to not have actually flown anything digital yet. Uh, I've flown industrial stuff, but that's not really quite the same. Uh, so I'm, I'm still happy flying analog. It hasn't really spoiled, been spoiled for me yet. <laughs> it is pretty amazing to see it. And, you know, honestly, I was skeptical. We had some demos at our shop, even when... Uh, um, even when DJI actually a rep came and demoed their stuff at our shop and we were not that impressed because uh, we had some lockouts. They literally dropped a quad in the pond across the street because of a radio lockout. Oh, um, uh, so, but that said, um, flying with it, it's pretty amazing. So 
The big advantage we have with analog, though, is that it's a known open technology that's really easy. You have a lot of compact products, super tiny cameras, super tiny video transmitters that you can easily integrate. Digital is, you know, all of all of the digital technologies are mostly proprietary, although we're starting to see a couple companies possibly make some DJI compatible transmitters. But the receiving side is still just DJI and and you know, it's DJI, they're not as uh, part of the community, I guess you'd say, as a lot of these other companies. And, uh, um, and you know, from a, from a vendor standpoint, um, they're harder to work with. Um, you know, they, they're the big boys on the block and they, 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 you know, they work with companies, you know, like the, the, the massive chain stores when it comes to their drones. So they, they don't seem to have a huge incentive to try to, to work with uh, smaller companies as much. So um, I definitely think that if we can get a, a digital system that is more open, uh, like the analog has been, then that's gonna help. The problem is what incentive does a company have to develop something that's if it's open and just literally gonna ever gonna be manufactured by every other company that's out there. Um, so it's a tough thing. And you know, I I Fat Shark has been working for a long time. And you know, we talked about the history of FPV. Fat Shark is one of the earliest companies uh, in the FPV industry. You know, they Greg uh, that started Fat Shark and he's he He's still running the technical side, but doesn't really run the company directly anymore. But, uh, you know, he was one of those people early on making one of the first products that, you know, that got people into this industry. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of stuff's been copied. But, uh, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for them because of them starting early, you know, and it's they get kind of drowned out by the wave of new products uh, coming from other companies. But um, they're one of those that have been around a long time. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of open uh, technology, uh, I totally agree at this point. I mean, uh, we, we have to we have to distinguish here. Uh, we are not especially talking about open source stuff, right. just, but just at least open. at least yeah. an open standard so uh, yes. everyone can use. Um, I mean. I'm not completely uh, sure if I understand the concept uh, behind the development of uh, Sharkbite at the moment, because as far as I understand it, Sharkbite wanted to have a digital system, so they hired the company HD Zero to develop the Sharkbite system for them. But uh, then uh, Fetchark somehow has, um, yeah, they have their their own targets. They don't care enough about it so hd0 decided okay we do our own thing with the system it will stay compatible it will stay open so everyone can create a camera for example and uh, they are doing basically their own thing and they want to do it cheaper than Fark, uh, Sh uh, shark um, fat shark does it right now and that's the reason why for example the uh, new runcam camera is branded runcam hd0 and not runcam shark bite whatever it, it has both logos on it but uh, it's yeah it's basically uh, hd0 development and we also have the open hd uh, caroline tyler in the uh, jet just mentioned that um, but at this point i have to say or well, from my perspective i must say open hd it's a nice development it's a nice proof of concept that it can work with completely open hardware but um uh, it's not usable or it's, it's it's basically useless for daily 
use for what we do actually i mean you still need a raspberry you still need a camera you need a, a specific wi-fi module that has to be boosted for the range uh, you have to have another raspberry pi as a ground station on the on the ground uh, with hdmi output I, i'm not sure how exactly it works in detail but you have to add so much hardware and it's so complex uh, to set it up it's just not nothing you can you can use on a daily basis especially in smaller crafts e even in my clouds i don't have enough space right now left to put a uh, open hd in there and yeah. <laughs> we have we have people that oh go ahead sorry oh sorry i was gonna ask one thing which is um just kind of like when we we're talking about this darren kind of brought up a point as far as osd um i came from the world of you know line of sight planes and when i Failsafe was always, if I could hear the plane, I know it's close by. So, you know, you can always, like, if if you if you look down for a second and you can't see your plane when you look up, you put full throttle and you can find it. But when I switched over to FPV, it was like, I need to see all the telemetry. I need all these numbers. I need to know how far away it is. I need to know how high up I am. I need to know which way is back. I need to know which way I'm going. And if I don't have that in an OSD, then I, I, it's not of any use to me, even if it's beautiful. And Darren, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I well, it's, it's weird because I've flown FPV without any OSD at all, but I just don't feel confident going sort of beyond visual line of sight with it. <laughs> um, right. But then, you know, I, I, if years ago, I used to be a software developer, so I'm quite a data-driven person, <laughs> so I'm just give me all the information I, I want to see what's going on um so I, I just like having that but i you know i set up multiple osds so i can turn it off if i don't want it or i just want to fly and enjoy the, the scenery i can switch the osd off but i like the fact that i can get everything that i want back if i need it <laughs> that, that's a that's a good point uh just recently i made the um what was it? The uh, AR Ring Pro uh, of a friend here in my city, and uh, he has installed the DJI stuff, but didn't know how uh, where to wire up the uh, UART actually. So he didn't do that, and he had no soldering iron with him when we went flying. So I had to maiden and tune it without any OSD. So uh -huh. I just had the plain video feed, and it was so weird to fly. I think after three or four minutes, mm. it felt like I was flying like 20 minutes and the battery is empty. <laughs> you don't need a soldering iron. Just twist the wires, poke it in, twist it round. <laughs> I, I, I had to do a field repair on my mini AR, and it's still like that. <laughs> that was a power for the receiver, and it's still absolutely fine. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> Catch you off. What were you going to say? Oh, you're just uh, you're talking about the the complexity of the open HD system, and and you know it's and that's how this hobby evolved. Everything early on was really complex, involved multiple things needing to piece them together, and lots of wiring. You know, and I've got a you know there's people that are flying with 4G um, that you know it works, and there's a lot of latency, so you're not going to be flying in close to uh, um, you know obstacles necessarily. But for these longer range flights, absolutely beautiful. But the the what it takes to get there is a lot of people don't want to mess with it again same thing you know typically it's like a raspberry pi with a video capture card attached to it with an hd you know like gopro feeding the video capture card and you know you've got a literally you, you know the one of the guys i know that flies it puts a cell phone in his plane that's acting as the data link he's essentially using it as a just a um you know data link but you know all this extra stuff and i think that it will evolve. This hobby always does evolve to where there will be something that comes out eventually. But 
again, you know, it's it's difficult to, you know, as, as us, even as a vendor and manufacturer to justify necessarily the development of hardware um, that may or may not sell and it's very expensive and the market's very competitive. So it's tough, you know, to get that stuff to evolve, to be ready-made, which is kind of where we started. That was the whole point of some of the early stuff I did way back when I started. Is like It was crazy, all the complicated, crazy separate things you had to get. So I was making ready-made products that were at least wired more easily. So yeah, go ahead. I was actually, it's a question I thought of a while back and it's actually really uh, quite a nice point to put it in now, the way you've been talking about this is, yeah, what made you get started with ready-made RC? Was it something that evolved or out of what you were doing and eh, what's the story behind that? It, it truly was an evolution. So, you know, I was the hobbyist hacking this stuff together. There were a lot of products that just didn't exist yet. I started, um, you know, I wanted to make some pods, you know, and get them laser cut, you know, the, some of the pods that went in the planes. And, I, and I'm like, well, people wanted to buy them. So I like, oh, I'll just set up a little side store. You know, I had a full-time job. Again, I was an electrical engineer. I'm an electrical engineer and, you know, I had a job and, um, started just selling the pods. And then some people that were new didn't know what to do to get in and decided, you know, the coffee was expensive and the wife was, you know, giving me the, you know, you're spending how much on this stuff again, you know, kind of thing. And <laughs> so I'm like, well, maybe I can build some things for people, you know? So I started building fully assembled FPD planes, sometimes just FPD pods. And as part of that, I had to start buying products to piece them together. And it just, it literally slowly evolved. You know, it's like, oh, I added a thing to the site. I'm like, well, if I have to get some of these to build, I might as well resell them as well and see if people buy them. And, um, and then, you know, as, as I, since I was so involved, it just evolved from that to the point that, you know, I'm staying up till one or two o'clock in the morning trying to answer questions and, and uh, you know, get things packaged in the basement while, you know, trying to do the full-time job and, had to make a decision, you know, which one do I want to do? And, you know, this was fun. So um, decided to do this. On the flip side, I don't really get to fly nearly as much as I did before I started the business. That's crazy. <laughs> Once the business really kicked in, it's like, you know, now I'm doing business stuff all the time. But, you know, you do get to go out and test stuff and all that. But, uh, um, you know, so, uh, but yeah, so it really was, I didn't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to create a FPV store and going to be, you know, like the main people. It's just, it initially truly was uh, a slow evolution initially and just caught it right as this thing started to happen um, and was really, really blessed and lucky that it, that it did when it you know, happened when it did. So, um, yeah. So we um, are coming up on the hour break here. So uh, I want to say, first of all, Tim, thank you so much for uh, keeping on hitting all the points so everybody had everything i wanted to hit and you, you even threw in a few more that i forgot uh which like okay. light, lipo batteries so uh been fantastic i want to let you know what's coming up here uh for the next hour we're going to get into the transmitter wars next and just to let you know darren and i are both fr sky mark is radio master i don't know what luke is i think he's still in 17 megahertz um and yeah, faa woes so we're going to maybe talk a little bit about faa but then we're going to start talking about the trade wars, the pandemic, and supply chain. And these are the things I think people are most interested in. And from there, we're going to talk about the future. We're going to hit all that in the next hour. So a big hour coming up here. And please stick with us. We'll be back in three minutes. Hey, everybody, we're back. And it takes a big man to admit that they're wrong. And I am absolutely wrong about one thing, which is I do not believe that a young dude could hang planes from his uh, 
bedroom next to his bed and attract women. And uh, <laughs> so, Luke, you had proven me wrong with a beautiful girlfriend. Yeah, that, Some, somehow it works. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, I think that would be the first thing a woman would walk into a bedroom, see that, and like, okay, this guy's not old enough to be with me. But uh, <laughs> thanks for being a good sport about it, man. Um, okay, so now we're going to get into something which is uh, a bit controversial, but we never um, shy away from controversy. Uh, we're going to talk about transmitters and the transmitter war that's going on right now. So can you take us through it from a manufacturer, well, from a point of view of a being actual vendor? We're just kind of getting into it before we started. Well, what's 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 interesting is there's different aspects of it too. You have the uh, the transmitters from the 2.4 gigahertz side of things, you know, with with FR Sky and Radio Master and those. Then you have all of the long range systems um, that have uh, honestly has been. You go back far enough, you have well Dragon Link. Um, uh, I mean, it's still he's still there, although he's having some supply issues right now. Um, but you have you know, Crossfire, you have uh, the uh, R9 setup, um, you have others, tons of others, right? Open stuff. Um, so there's, and there seems to be always controversy at some level in all of them. Um, but I think one of the biggest ones, and you know, was mentioned before here is, you know, the FR Sky, uh, Radio Master uh, issues. And um, from a manufacturer, from a supplier, it puts us in a bad situation, especially when a manufacturer comes to us and says, you can't carry this other brand, which has happened um, more than one manufacturer. Um, so, you know, and, and, and we and we always don't always get the information, right? I mean, you know, the, the manufacturer, maybe FR Sky, for example, is going to give us their side of the story. <laughs> and you know they're going to spin it hard on their angle, um, and then we're going to hear from the others that are like, "This is open." You know why? You know why? Why does it matter? Um, I will say that uh, initially, when this all started, FR Sky had come back to us and said, "You know, you we if you're going to sell FR Sky, you're not going to sell the others, um, Radio Master specifically." And um, as part of that conversation, because the salesperson, which is in the U.S., that I was working with, was understanding of our awkward uh, the position it puts us in, right? Um, and he didn't agree with them coming down with that decision, but he's kind of stuck with it, um, you know. But they did send us some information that showed that, yeah, you know, it wasn't just the technology that Radio Master did just flat out copy some of the circuits that because they had things on some of their boards that literally did nothing, um, but they were pulled from the FR Sky circuit. So, that type of stuff has been a problem in this whole industry for years, you know, for as long as we've been in it, you know, people copy stuff. It's actually more culturally accepted. Um, and I think in the Chinese industries uh, to copy things, they don't look at it in the same way we do, um, even if they don't want it to happen to them. Uh, they, they, they don't look at it the same. So, um, so currently we still only saw far sky, although, they did change their stance a bit. Um, we will lose some benefits in, if and when we start selling Radio Master, um, but they will still sell to us. So now that instead of trying to just pull it under, out from under us, they've, they're just giving us some incentives to stick with them. So, um, Yeah, so we look at FR Sky. I mean, we're talking about the history of um, the radios uh, of FPV, and they've gone back to, I believe, 2011. 
And what they were was a protocol, ACCST. That was kind mm -hmm. of like a much better protocol than anything else out there. I guess Spectrum was the big thing out there at the time. And then ACCST came in there and, and it had a superior link. Um, and then they also started funding the open source project of um, OpenTX. And so they had a full-time developer in the OpenTX product. A project, and the part of the idea was that when you bought one of the radios, you're actually helping to fund the OpenTX project. Uh, and then what you started to see were people stealing their their protocols, as far as ACCST was starting to show yes. up on the toy yeah. drones. And then you would start to see like the radio master copied their entire radio, so they're basically they're selling a Horus radio system for $120, you know, with a color screen on it, and not paying for the open source project. And one of the things that they decided to do was they said, okay, enough, we're switching over to a proprietary um, protocol. So we're switching to access. And then now they're betting the farm on something called Ethos, which is their version of uh, OpenTX, but it's kind of like a cross between OpenTX and Spectrum in some ways. So it's an easier menuing system. It's really kind of a nice little overall system. But I mean, this is, you know, essentially, they've gotten burned so badly by the industry that they have to go proprietary. Um, and, I, I, and I, unfortunately, for the user end user, it's been horrible. For us, it's been horrible. The the move to access has been so confusing and difficult from us as from a support standpoint. Um, and the fact that some things are and some things aren't backwards compatible has been just horrible. You know, especially when you came out of so many of these. Uh, uh, whoop drones and small things that came with a uh, you know a D D8 uh, mode receiver built right in, right. and now well to use it with an FR Sky transmitter you have to use an adapter you know and I again I understand why they did it yeah I disagree with the fact that they've they they dropped the compatibility on their newer uh, radios with it because it just makes it a nightmare to support um, what people are doing and and it, and it actually i think helped radio master because now you have radio master that just works with a lot of these other third-party items but it is you know again the protocol was theirs you're right um you know the the technology they're using on the radios for the actual function of the radio was open source and that's where it became such a big issue i think is that people are like well you're using open source you can't lock it down like, well but it was our radio protocol and you know it's it get a lot of finger pointing and a lot of opinions that are very strong and, um, you know, they're just, uh, yeah. And, you know, some people will, I think there are people that will never use FR Sky again. Um, and I think there, that there are people who will never use Radio Master. Um, and I don't know that either one's totally right. I, I get it. I get both sides and here we are stuck in the middle, right? <laughs> Yeah, but if you're starting out today, you buy yourself a, a FR Sky system with access, you're ready to go. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, as long you, as you're not using something that's older or something that has D8 right. mode that you have to get a module that, you know, uh, that, that works with it. But yeah, it's, uh, and that's, that's a difficulty. Or that some of these were somewhat backwards compatible with D16 mode, but you had to do firmware updates, which was not a straightforward progress or process um, for a lot of them. Um, so, you know, it just it added so much difficulty and from a support standpoint, oh my gosh, you know, we have schools buying some of these radios for STEM projects and can you know, imagine people like you guys and, and, and us were used to dealing with the fooling around with changing firmware and things like that, which is not that big of a deal really yeah. to us, but to a school that maybe doesn't really understand anything about yeah. it. 
it's just mm -hmm. overwhelming. You know, they don't Mark. know where to look. Yeah, I mean, um, I can understand the points uh, that some people bring up with the compatibility, um, especially on the 2.4 gigahertz system. I mean, uh, you have if, if you have a radio with access, then uh, all your receivers have to be either on access or at least on ACST ST V2, so on the newer ones. But uh, on the other hand, uh, yes, it is a little bit of a hassle to update them, especially because they don't have OTA updates. Uh, you have to do it manually. Uh, no matter if you connect it directly to the radio or to uh, your Betaflight flag controller and update with pass-through, doesn't matter. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there are receivers from 2014 or 2015 uh, that got the ACC STV2 firmware update. So mm -hmm. you, you won't have any receiver laying around that is not compa compatible with an access radio actually they all work you have to update them once and then they just work and what i what i also actually like is uh with access uh they they removed a lot of the problems people had with ACCST. We have uh, OTA updates now, we have link quality now, although it's unfortunately not passed to the flight controller, but at least on the radio we have link quality. And uh, the biggest advantage uh, that I see is that you don't have different receiver firmwares anymore for FCC, for uh, EU or for uh, Flex, for example, you just have one receiver firmware and the receiver just switches the mode according to your radio. And that's a nice thing. Uh, so, so you have much less work to do if you get a new receiver. You just update them. You don't have to look, okay, is that the right firmware or is that the right one? You just flash the firmware update that's available. There is a, absolutely. If you're staying with the FR Sky branded stuff, then yeah, it's it's not a big deal. I, we, we see the issues with the the plug-and-play stuff that's made by third parties uh, that, that come out that doesn't have the ability to have the firmware updated. It's working in older D8 mode and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan. That's why we carry FR Sky. I mean, that's we don't carry Radio Master right now. We, we probably will eventually, but we don't currently. Um, and, and there's one more point uh, you, you talked about uh, that people, or S Steve already said, uh, that people fight about what the best system is. Actually, I, from, from my personal view, I absolutely don't care what the companies do, what uh, the systems do, what, the what they did to the community, I don't care. What, cares for, what I care for is the system has to do what I want to do, period. And that's the reason why I use R9, for example, for all my planes, because R9 gives me 16 channels, it gives me uh, the biggest telemetry range I can get in the 868 uh, MHz range, it has enough range for me, uh, for my uh, long-range flights, and that's all that counts for me. And it is comp compatible with OpenTX and different external hardware like my antenna tracker or whatever. So it's just plug and play and directly pass through to the antenna tracker without any hassle. If I if I look uh, for Crossfire, for example, in the past, they had issues with the uh, INA flight mode not transmitted correctly, and it needed an actual a uh, crossfire update and an OpenTX update to fix this issue to get the flight mode on the radio again. I never had these issues with FR Sky. With R9 it just works. You know, it has to work for me and I don't care about the company that's behind it. I have a Radio Master radio. The reason why I use the Radio Master is because it gives me tons of features 
compatibility with every system I need, and it's cheap. I mean, okay, I guys. bought the yeah. His name is Mark Hoffman. <laughs> Send out your hate mail to Mark Hoffman. You start. Those are fighting words. Um, so, Darren, you are the like the our expert as far as uh, radios are concerned, all transmitters. So, your two cents, please. Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, um, I, I just know what I use. Um, and yeah, what Tim was saying about D8, um, I just got one of those. This. Yeah. My, yeah. Light XJT module. Um, yep. because, I also have one. Yeah, a couple of my yeah. planes have got uh, L9R receivers in there. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, for 30, 30 pounds, so it's what, 35, yeah, $40? It, it, it fixes everything. <laughs> There's no, okay. no issues at all. I combine that to anything. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree with Mark. What, what The best transmitter is the one that you get on with the best. It, yeah. Right. It, it does what you want. You get you get it. Um, for me, um, my first transmitter was a DX6i, and I didn't get on with it. Um, I went to OpenTX, and there was a little bit of a learning curve, but afterwards it just it just made sense. And then uh, if I go back to Spectrum or Futaba systems, I just can't find anything in a logical place. It's like uh, setting up <laughs> simple stuff. Like uh, a guy at the, the Flight Club I'm at wanted a throttle cut on his Futaba, and it took you know, half an hour to find where this throttle cut was. It just wasn't in anywhere logical. Um, but it, you know, some people just click with Futaba. It's yeah, you know, whatever you get on with is is the best system, and it's yeah, you know, and whatever works. I mean, Spectrum, I wouldn't wish on anybody. <laughs> if, oh, every, oh my God! Every, it's every like... time. Well, if, every time my flying field, there's an issue with RF or a brownout, it is 100% always Spectrum. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It's and always it's, Spectrum. It's not brand bashing. It's just what happens. <laughs> and, yeah, some of these guys have been flying for years. They know how to set up their antennas for diversity, but they still have issues with it. Mm. Um, Futaba has no issues. Jetty has no issues. Free Sky has no issues. Every time there's an RF issue, it's with a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's <laughs> that, that's just what I've observed. <laughs> and before we get off this topic, we do want to say that yes, we do know that there's Express LRS out there. You guys keep doing what you're doing. We love you. Um, uh, I think uh, Darren's playing with it right now, right, Darren? He's he's gotten for something. Uh, yeah, I've got I got the 2.4, which Mark yeah. will hate. There you go, Mark. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, it's. Um, I have a I have an uh, 2.4 gigahertz ALRS module in my uh, cart on Banggood at the moment. Oh my god! Because I I want to make a I want to make a proper range test on it. That's everything yeah. I want to do. Then I will sell it. <laughs> we'll get back yeah, to you. I, mean, I, I was just curious, and I do did need it to try and you know test some stuff out. Um, but to be honest, there are some things about it that I really like. Um, Forgetting all the legality of the frequencies and all that, because obviously there are issues there. Um, their website is fantastic. It's, you know, there's a lot of things that other companies can learn looking at their website. Everything you need to know about using ELRS is there. The Wi-Fi update actually works really well. Just plug it in, leave it for a few seconds, it starts blinking, and then you can update it with a Wi-Fi. There's some things that work really well. Other things are a bit convoluted. 
um, other things aren't so great, like uh, the receiver, um, the little ear, wherever it is. Yeah, it's tiny, which is great, but it doesn't work with the 4.5 volts on this flight controller. I have to plug it into 5 volts. It's, I mean, that might just be the the happy model thing is just um, not so good. But there are there are some things that aren't great with it. But you know, it's yeah. I'm probably not. Good, I might put it on cheap things because they're only 10 quid a receiver. But it's I'd rather use the other stuff to be honest. R9 yeah. works. Well, yeah, especially when you're putting a few well. hundred dollars into a plane. I agree with you 100%. So fantastic. Yeah, so I, I, Tim, what do you think? I mean, you're a guy who started back in 2006 and you're starting to see we're fighting over all these different protocols on these radios. Can you imagine having all this good stuff, you know, back then? It's mind boggling, yeah. isn't it? Right. And, well, yeah, I, I will say, though, there's always been fighting as these systems came out. People always have said other people are copying from them and everything. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, it, what we have now is just incredible. I mean, what, what we started with, what I started with, you mentioned Spectrum. Um, I was trying to fly the old original Spectrum stuff with FPV, which was, you know, before they DX7? even came. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it was a DX6, but it was. The protocol was not the current DSM. It was, it was that the, the DX6 Park Fly with DSM. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. That was yeah. what I started with as well. Trying to oh my gosh. It's a nightmare. You turn on anything and it just blocks it out. Of, yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, the legality of it. Now that puts us as a business, we have to be careful too. And that actually is part of the reason we didn't pick up uh, Radio Master initially, in addition to the threats from from other companies um, because we'll names. Uh, because those, you know, we have to be very careful. Uh, the FCC here in the U.S. did go after companies and luckily we were following rules, but, you know, some, you know, a couple other companies got fined um, for selling stuff that didn't follow the rules. And we, most of our equipment operates under amateur radio rules um, and we're able to import it and sell it because it fits within the amateur radio uh, world the, with with uh, what it can broadcast. Things like tran RC transmitters typically are FCC certified part 15, which gives them more frequencies to use, but they're very limited on power at certain parts of that. When, when uh, Radio Master first started selling, they had not been FCC certified yet. So we, after already have being hit with the, you know, the FCC looking at us luckily like i said we we came out all right but we we weren't going to carry them until they got us now they did eventually get fcc certified um you know question a lot of these manufacturers how legitimate that may or may not be but hey they've got the id on it and it's on there so you know so you know we could sell them now but that was one of the reasons we didn't pick them up immediately too is because when they first started selling they didn't have that certification yet but they shouldn't have been selling them the other companies shouldn't have been selling them here in the u.s but um, again, the rules are different in the EU. Power requirements are different over there. Um, they don't have to get a certification in the same way. They just have to follow the rules in my understanding. So the rules obviously are vastly different, but it just here in the US, that was part of the problem with us. So, um, and, and then we have to be careful with any of these long range systems because uh, uh, usually they are limited within the frequency bands, but some of the 2.4 gigahertz ones are using more of the band than what fits in the amateur radio band. And that means that it, we can't say that it's an amateur radio device 
to sell it. So it puts us in a tight situation where we can't necessarily sell some of these. Um, and there's been boring, you know, regulatory stuff for years about, you know, even FPV trans video transmitters and whether or not they're legal or to use or not. But, you know, it's uh, technically on pretty much every, well, across the board, the analog video transmitters in the U.S. are supposed to be operated under amateur radio rules. They, I don't know a single one right now that's FCC certified that's analog. Just while you're talking about uh, radio stuff and stock, uh, you have a little silver box that looks very similar to that. And a, a lot of rumors were going around that it's discontinued. It's not, it's um, not discontinued. Um, I just wanted want to, to go into the supply chain stuff now. Yeah, you can do. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you have to, so, you, uh, Darren. Just a second, yeah. Darren. You have to make a label on it, not a 1.2 gigahertz video transmitter. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have yeah. another one, which is an unskilled 5.8, because this one actually doesn't go any further than 10 meters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, first, the first thing I will say, so you know, they're obviously those things have been around a long time, but they're not all the same. No, no. Um, the some, some of, one is awesome. I, I yeah. haven't got one there, so I'm, this is why yeah. I'm interested as well. <laughs> uh, some some parts, you know, those were manufactured using what were essentially receivers for uh, cable TV <laughs> boxes, and most or a lot of the parts are no longer in production um, that make up some of those. So um, first of all, we have we've been customizing ours for years, had special stuff done to make them work better for FPV. Obviously, there's a, it's a horrible RF environment when you're using long-range systems that are running on frequencies that maybe can uh, affect them. So, um, but our more recent ones um, had to be basically we had to get a new manufacturer to make everything from the ground up because a lot of this stuff just isn't available, or if it is, it's it's you know it's being made by companies that are just have copied chips and things that are really not good. So you know, as you saw, what you had there, uh, performance-wise, they're they're just nothing like they used to be. Even the, they're they're worse than the the lower quality ones used to be. Most of what's out there now, ours. And those are, ones you find it's very much you get one, and it could be good or it could be absolute yeah, crap. Yeah. It's it's luck of the draw. So um, ours are totally different though. Ours are manufactured by um, uh, the main board is manufactured by a company that does a lot of our products for us. Now it's not just coming from the generic places um, with and they have customizations done to make work and make them work the, the the modules themselves are still being customized to be more tolerant with our stuff so supply chain wise um, yeah there's so as you guys have probably already noticed there's a lot of stuff on our our website not in stock right now um, and there are multiple reasons right now for that um, some of its supply chain issues some of its covid related stuff and just money flow uh, there's a lot of different things that have kind of conspired to, to putting a, a lot of things out of stock. Oh, don't so, worry. We're going to get into that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so what, what I wanted to do was just really um, not make this a, an entree, but more of an hors d'oeuvre. It's the topic that we should just touch on. Um, how okay. concerned should we be about the FAA? And keep in mind that we're being watched around the world. So, you know, um, it's like, um, if we go deep, too deep into this, people in UK will, won't really care too much. Yeah, no. So, well, you know, it affects the availability of products. You know, if you use, if you lose the U.S. market completely, then it, you know, can affect the whole industry. But, you know, I, honestly, I think the biggest thing, in some ways, is better that they're coming up with more concrete rules because we've been working over the past, 
I don't know how many years where it was so vague that you felt like at any minute you did anything and they could come down on you. You know, they, they overreacted and tried to, you know, prevent us from really flying much at all. You know, most of the current rules are going to forbid what most of us would do as long range flying, um, whether people are going to do it or not, whatever, people are always going to do their own thing. But um, the, the remote ID aspect is probably the only thing that I see being anything big coming up that's changed from what we <laughs> today. Um, and honestly, there's not enough information yet to know. It really sounds like, you know, we're going to be able to just have some companies making some equipment that fits within whatever protocols they decide are the final protocols. And if people choose not to do it, they're putting themselves at risk of, of the FAA coming after them. You know, I mean, when the rule, the, the proposed rules initially came out, it was bad um, because they did not leave enough room for the DIYers or those sell, like us selling partial kits. They didn't leave enough room in the regulations for us to technically sell even a plane. You know, we, technically, we would have not been able to sell sell the uh, um, the goblin that's sitting in the background there because they wrote the rule is that either it's a fully integrated system from a manufacturer and has to have remote ID built into it, which you're not going to get in a, the way we sell planes, right? Or it's a DIY that literally the person built themselves every part with very minor percentage of it, of pre-made parts. And it wasn't possible. And that, that scared us. Um, we, we thought at that point, like, how is this even possible? They did come back and the rules now for these kit type planes and stuff are way looser. So um, we, there will be a point where maybe we couldn't sell a plane with a radio and everything that you need unless it has remote ID built into it that the customer can't modify. Can't, you know, people, this, we, we all can modify this stuff, right? But, you know, it makes it really difficult for someone to modify. But we don't really sell much like that. We don't, you know, People in our part of the hobby are not buying fully ready to fly systems. Now, those are more like the DJI, the Phantoms and things like that. And they're, they're gonna do what they're gonna do. So I, I'm not particularly worried about it. The biggest thing I see is that those of us that would like to be able to fly longer range beyond the line of sight are still just like technically it's been for a while are not gonna be able to do it and say we're following any set of rules. You know, um, Mark, you've yeah. had your hand up for quite a while. Oh, sorry, yeah, I didn't see that. No problem. Uh, Bonafide Pirate had a question in the chat for Tim. Uh, are the current RMRC receivers better than the older ones that used Comtech modules, similar to Racewood? Maybe I could do with some new receivers if they are better. No, I wouldn't say they're better. They're about the same. We've, uh, uh, when we were testing them performance-wise, um, they're about the same as the old, uh, with the good, yeah, and that company just went out of business, um, the, that made those old modules, unfortunately. Um, again, you know, no more cable industry needing analog receivers. So, um, but I would say they are very close to the same performance. We've had some people say they're less. I've had some people say they're a little more. I know that I've, I've, uh, when we were first testing them, we had one of our customers go a few miles with just dipole antennas on each side. Um, and I think it was a 400 milliwatt on the transmitter on the plane. Um, you know, again, it's hard to get a, a um, anything that's uh, not just subjective, you know, when you're trying to, conditions change so much in every flying condition, but 
uh, I would say that they're they're on in line with the the older ones with the the old Comtech uh, modules that were in them. Okay, before we get off the FAA, the only thing I'd like to add to it is that um, back in a few years ago, there was, I was watching the news and there's this woman that came on to do the entertainment report who was so unbelievably gorgeous. I just sat there with my mouth open like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen in my entire life. And after a while, I got used to looking at her and listening to what she had to say. She didn't have much to say, but she was just still really good looking. And uh, someone named Jeff Bezos decided that he needed her in his life. And because of that, I think that uh, he found himself out of the leadership role in Amazon. And I think that is a lot of our problems in the industry. And him being gone out of Amazon is really going to help us a lot in the future with FAA. Because I think a lot of the shenanigans that you're talking about with uh, basically regulating us into the cornfield had to do with uh, his ego and wanting to control the airspace. So. Thankfully, he's uh, he's uh, in uh, whatever mode he's in right now, going flying rockets to outer space um, and taking celebrities with him. But um, now um, we're going to get into, so we started talking about the supply chain, and this is the thing that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts um, as far as, um, now as I recall, you, you had an issue going back to 2000. Mark, do you still have a question or is it, uh, you, okay, you take it. Um, the um, what happened was I noticed a couple of years ago you started having inventory issues, um, probably like 2019, and it was before the pandemic. So and that was around the time of the trade war. So what was going on back then? What happened with the pandemic and what's going on now? There's a, there's a lot of things that, that go into some of that things like that. Um, and it also depends on which group of products you're talking about, too. Planes have their unique issues when it comes to supply chain. Uh, they can't be shipped to us the same way the other items are. Um, and the industry, you know, changes quickly. Um, so, um, you know, as we get, you know, someone mentioned Banggood and some things like that, you know, as people, there, were, for, there was a while where a lot of people were buying a lot of stuff from Banggood because they were just selling stuff dirt cheap and selling a lot of stuff that was, we couldn't even sell because of it wasn't, because it wasn't legal. Um, but, at least here in the U.S. So, you know, that that affected some of the supply issues back then. Planes are always a challenge because um, they have to be made in large batches. They have to it's a long time to be manufactured. Uh, generally, it's a few months and we usually have to pay up front for them a very large cost of uh, manufacturing. And because of their size, uh, they have to go ocean freight. Um, you know, otherwise, literally shipping costs more than the planes themselves if you try to go air freight with them. Um, so it always it starts to put a uh, supply issues there because you know we try to not order too early. You try to judge what's going to be needed, and um, you know, and then it just takes time. You know, the, just the shipping alone. The, well, before pre-pandemic would take a month. You know, once they did ship, and um, you know, a big container might cost seven thousand dollars then to, to ship um you know and you fill it up with planes great because then you know, the cost per unit is not that bad but you have to fill it up so um so the market had changed a little bit there and it tightened things up a bit for us it wasn't a really a problem necessarily but just we had to just be more careful where we were putting our money um and the pandemic hit and it really changed things drastically initially too because initially sales stopped and then they kind of ramped up a bit again, um, but um, became a little less predictable. 
And, and, and not long after that, then we started seeing supply issues where things maybe were taking a little longer to get manufactured. Um, chip shortage didn't happen right away, but we started seeing signs of problems. You know, factories were closed down um, overseas and uh, things like that. So now we are in a position where um, large numbers of the products, um, there are just supply issues. Anything that uses uh, processors or various certain types of chips um, either are significantly delayed, maybe have to be, the products have to be changed because certain chips aren't available at all right now. Um, prices have gone up on a lot of things. But when it comes to planes, it's brought a whole new problem um, in that you know, you see, you know, planes have to go ocean. You're seeing right now these ships uh, that are lined up. Well, this has been going on a little bit longer than what's been talked about on the news. Um, the problems we saw starting probably a year ago were that uh, there's some of these supply chain issues with containers started happening. Uh, containers were getting stuck at ports back then even. The, the problem from our standpoint with that is when a container gets stuck, not only did we have to sit and wait longer for it, but they charge storage fees for those. Um, and even as long as a year ago, we were starting to get word back from some of these freight carriers that there that some containers are getting storage fees. And, you know, it could be like fifteen thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars. Wow. Um, because you know, if it sits at the ports out west, if it sits up in Chicago at the train yard, you know, they they charge for that. And there was no way to guarantee that your container was going to make it through. Um, so we decided at that time to hold off ordering any planes. Um, we didn't want to put all that money up front to manufacture them, to have them sit somewhere and potentially cost multiple times. And we're still in that situation. Um, right now, the cost of shipping containers has just gone up by default. Just the base price has gone up. Uh, last I saw, um, you know, what was maybe seven thousand might be fifteen to twenty thousand for a container. Still, with that risk of adding on an awful lot more of it sitting in a port. So, you know, this mar this market doesn't have margins like some other industries do. Um, you know, clothing industries, you know, might have hundreds of percents of margin on some of their items and stuff. We we we're we're competing directly with the Chinese companies shipping direct to customers, so we don't have those margins. So currently, we still are holding getting our planes made. Now, that all that said, this and the other supply issues where we've had a lot of shortages, there's we're working on some stuff right now that should allow us to at least give the go ahead to manufacture a lot of these planes um, and to start moving forward and also restock a bunch of the stuff that we don't have otherwise. So. I guess uh, just to ask for a little patience there. It's been a weird couple of years, and um, we uh, um, it, we understand it's frustrating. You know, you look and uh, you know even uh, INAV stuff is out of stock. A lot of it's on our, on our site right now is out of stock. So we get that. Um, bear with us. It's going to be back. Um, prices may go up just because of chip issues and stuff. So we have to to watch that. Um, but um, we expect to have some stuff going on here in the next few weeks that will uh, help us we'll see some hopefully some major changes here so uh, some funding coming in that we're going to be able to push some of the things that are being held up by funding are going to be able to move forward and we can risk a little bit more of investing in some of these things that don't that might take us six months to get a return on you know it's a it's a dangerous thing when you have to spend you know 
a pretty massive chunk of money on something that literally you won't even have in your store for potentially six months or longer. So, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> well, um, yeah, I mean, obviously we, we can all sympathize and it's affecting a lot of people. Um, but you were talking about your planes and I was just wondering if you would like to discuss, you know, where where the planes you know, came from, the, the concepts, because okay. to be honest, the Goblin and the Nano Goblin are just awesome, awesome planes. So, and I'd just love to yeah. hear the story. <laughs> so, before yeah, we get off topic on that, can we just hold that uh, a little bit later as far as because I want to get into all your planes and talk about all that stuff, too. So, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about was just kind of from the manufacturing point of view, uh, I, I before well, a long time ago, I was in the packaging industry and in China, if you were to go to China and say, I've got uh, I'd like to make a deodorant case. Uh, so it's just blow mode plastic. You would go to them and they would be, you know, 15 companies that would bid on making that blow mode plastic case for the deodorant. And, you know, they you put the best price in. you figure out which company was the best. Um, when, you know, their assumption was you can buy full containers of this. Now, if there was less than a full container, it was, you know, it was, well, not, not, they're not quite as excited to do it, but they'll do it anyways, especially if they've got a little excess capacity left over. And the reason I bring that up is because a lot of what we buy, as far as these plants are concerned, are packaging materials. So the EPP foam, the EPO foam, the uh, we were talking uh, to Chris Click um, with Right Wing, and he was mentioning that the BASF foam he used is manufactured at the Mercedes-Benz bumper company. Um, so that is, uh, you know, it's the stuff is used for a lot of different things. And first and foremost, all of the best manufacturing machines in the world are located in China. And I, my understanding is these things are running full tilt. And when it comes to doing something, if you come into them and say, listen, I cannot buy a full container of planes, but I can buy a quarter container of planes. Maybe they're not so excited to talk to you today as they were two years ago or three years ago. Is that, that what you find? Um, I don't know if there are any less. They've always been, uh, you know, like you said, they've always been not particularly thrilled about not doing large runs. I mean, some of them, it's crazy. They won't even... They won't even say they'll charge you more for doing less. They just don't even want to talk about doing less. Like yeah. some of them will just be like, "No, if you don't want to run a thousand, we're not going to talk to you." And a um, you know, thousand planes is a pretty big uh, investment, and that's just one plane. Um, so yeah, and and you mentioned the the foams and materials. It is crazy that the the, the especially on all the better planes, uh, ours our planes, the foam is coming from the U.S. Um, the actual raw materials are manufactured in the U.S., shipping to China, and being molded there and sent back to us. And we have we have looked multiple times and haven't found a U.S. company that has had any interest in working in with us with these planes, especially in the even the even these larger quantities. They just don't want to talk about um, because the the companies that are molding these foams in the U.S. are are making packaging and. Typically, they they're doing such high volumes and making so much more. I mean, when it comes down to it, the cost of labor in China and the cost of everything in China is so much less that we we've tried multiple times to see if we can make this stuff in the U.S. Because think about how that would help with the supply chain issues right now. Right. Um, but we just can't find anyone that that wants to do it. Um, 
and our molds are in China, and you know it's going to be tough to get the the molds back to the U.S. anyway, uh, unless we came up with a brand new plane. And molds were a pretty massive investment up front anyway for these planes. The molds are huge. Um, I imagine if they were made in the U.S., they would probably. I mean, generally, well, at least when we were in China back in 2014, you know, everything there was about a sixth the price that it is here. Uh, everything across the board was about a sixth. So. Um, you know, that would mean that a mold for a plane here might be on the order of over a half a million dollars, you know, or, or more just for a single set of molds uh, for one plane. So, um, you know, if that translates to that. So, um, yeah, it, it's it. But you're right. I mean, it, they don't want to talk. And, you know, it, and it's economically it, it's yes, you can do less than container loads, but uh, getting a full container is the. Uh, most feasible financially um, and safest for the planes. Anytime they have to, the, these warehouses have to start moving skids around. You have, I don't know how many times we've had less container loads that have had, you know, forklift holes through the through the plane boxes and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, try to avoid that. Oh yeah, the, the shipping nightmares are notorious out of China and manufacturing issues. You know, someone's sitting at the factory watching over it, then you've got manufacturing issues going on as well, right? Yeah. So, and, and we've also found that we have to work with very specific manufacturers to get the quality that we want. Um, you know, they, it is a, it's, it's a known um, uh, way of life that it's, it's kind of a good enough attitude. You know, they, they, they won't go as far in making their products as good a quality unless they're forced to. They, they, uh, they're more likely to say it's good enough. There's an actual Chinese word for that that whole frame of mind. Um, I don't know what it is now, but, uh, and, and they, they, we've had manufacturers question like, why, why are you so worried about making this, this good? And like, because that's what our customers want. We don't, it's not good enough unless this is right. And that's the, the goblin and nano goblin are, are some things that we really had to work hard on because those are tighter tolerance, uh, aircraft than some others. The Nano Goblin had a lot of unique problems because of how thin the mold or how thin some of the foam is um, and getting the density right and just cha them changing little things could change how things fit together on the parts. It's crazy how much the dimensions of the parts can change even using the exact same mold just by them not doing something exactly the same each time. Um, so, uh, but yeah, those, uh, it's, it's, so we found though working with a few very specific manufacturers that were able to get them to do what we want more more than uh, some of the others. Interesting. All right. So now that we're discussing uh, the Nano Goblin and some of your custom planes, this is a great opportunity to jump into it and kind of talk about the planes. Like what was the thinking? Uh, Darren, you were asking about what the thinking behind making the Nano Goblin or the Goblin? Well, yeah, because as far as I can remember, the Goblin came first. Um, yep. So I was just wondering what what were there any specific targets you're aiming for when you came up with the goblin because obviously it's really really efficient and pretty quick yeah. so so yeah, i'd just love to hear the story behind it absolutely so um so that was one that was our first 100 percent designed by us uh plane and i say us uh, with working with um, another person here in the us that had to design so the the first big strix plane was the stratosurfer and that one was essentially a collaboration between us and the manufacturer over there. Um, we said, this is what we wanted. They did all the design work and, um, and 
Um, so, you know, again, taking concepts of these, these uh, uh, Bixler slash uh, Sky or the Surfer style plane, we mod we did things that we wanted very specifically that us, us as pilots wanted in our planes, like we should have this, we should have this, we should have this, and made it that way. Um, and that was also the first blow molded fuselage plane that we had we had made. Um, so next, we started working with a guy. Um, he's in the heavy into our hobby um, out in California, Kevin Gustafson, um, and he he is obsessed with with aerodynamics, flight characteristics, and and he had some planes that he had built himself that were very similar to the Goblin itself. And, you know, we're, and we started working with him and said, you know, we want to come up with something that we can make that doesn't require, you know, someone to build this from scratch in their house. And we worked with him uh, on the, the design of the shape. He, so he really is the focus on the shape. And that shape is, as you've seen, you know, as you know, it's, it's probably the most or one of the most efficient airframes that are out there. Um, it was purely about efficiency, and because of that, I can go super fast as well because of the, the, the great aerodynamics on it. So we took that, and uh, we, um, at the time, we had a mechanical engineer working for us that took a lot of that and, you know, adapted, and we said, we want to do the blow molding again. We like how much room it leaves inside for equipment, um, you know, and then and the shell, the concept of the shelves and all the mounting points and so forth. Um, kind of came together and um, the density of the foam was something that we worked at for a really long time on that as well. That's um, a higher density foam than most other planes for the wings. Uh, that makes them more rigid, uh, makes them more able to handle crashes, although then now your pressure is going to other places. So, you know, the carbon fiber has to work a lot harder now if you hit something. Um, uh, so, so that plane was designed with that in mind. Um, so what we absolutely loved about it when it came out is how well it flew, how efficient it was. Um, the, the, the feedback we got is less experienced pilots have a really hard time launching and landing that plane. Um, it, it, it requires a good, you know, it needs to get some speed up. And typically if you're going for speed of, of flight, you're not gonna have a lot of actual thrust, you know, the, so, um, it takes a heavy, heavy launch and a really, you know, you need some experience. So you were getting a lot of people that were just crashing them on launch or had a hard, didn't have enough room to land them because they, they don't slow down. So you yep. need a lot of room. Um, <clears throat> so we started tossing around this whole idea of, you know, what about a under 250 gram? You know, we were talking with Kevin at the time as well. And he had some ideas about something that flies that's more of a something closer to a backyard flyer. Um, that can fly really slow, but has the same style of wing and also the same efficiency aspects. So take that style, but, but target not only efficiency, but also being able to fly more slowly. So the, the Nano Goblin came from that. And I got to tell you, when we were developing that plane, that was the most fun I personally had developing any product because, you know, as we started getting, first of all, his little uh, cabin had made kind of a, just a from scratch uh, test build of one. And then we started, when we started working on getting the molds made, we had to go through and, and do some iterations on some of the modifying of some of the things on there. And that immediately clicked with all of us that we're like, we're, we're doing the thing that a lot of the quad guys are doing where we're flying down low and under obstacles and stuff. 
but with a fixed wing plane and it just made it I, I enjoy flying fixed wing more than more than quads it's fine I'll fly quads and that's fine but I just enjoy fixed wing a little bit more and um it just I was like I looked forward to like oh darn we got to go test let's go out and test oh yeah it's such a hard day at work today right um but you know it, it but it came down to that one um you know again the big target was under 250 grams fully loaded with everything on it and the the really good flight characteristics um so over and it's durable because it's so light that typically you can bounce it off of things and it, you know very little damage something you can glue real quick if it does break it's super low density lower density foam to keep it light so that does add a little bit of weakness just because it's not as the, the pellets are not packed quite as tightly to each other um so uh yeah that, that one just evolved from the other uh, we actually have another design that we started to look at that was going the other direction bigger instead of smaller uh, the problem there was seeing changes in the market. The cost of the molds for the bigger ones is, goes up with the size um, and much more limited market. You know, we feel that, yes, there will be hobbyists that want to fly it. We actually think that there would also be potentially commercial or government people that would want it too, but it's higher risk. And it's a plane that's, uh, you know, the Nano Goblin moves when, we, when we've got them, it moves out, you know, we can, we can sell them easily. The, the full-size Goblin, Sales slowed on that quite a bit. Again, it's a little harder, so it, it limits the, the the customer base a little bit. Um, so an even bigger plane, I'm sure people would love. We we have a prototype that we flew. It was great. I mean, it's amazing. This thing's huge and just flies forever. Um, you know, throw a big uh, lithium ion pack in it, and you just let the thing fly all day long, probably. But uh, you know, it's 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 not cheap. And we were potentially going to change a little bit. You know, that you, you learn things. You know the the full-size goblin um, being tough to land, um, you do tend to it's a little bit easier to break spars or to pull the wings off from the fuselage, and that's one of the complaints that we do get about it. Um, so you know we would try to take that into account, making a larger one, make some changes. Probably would not be molded because of the size, not be blow molded because of the size. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, so it's. Uh, it's a fun process, um, but those those really came between from someone who just loves optimizing and uh, to uh, to to these, you know, to something that we can manufacture and you know, make in bulk. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. So did I hear you right? You're talking about something larger than the Goblin? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, oh he gosh. had worked on some planes. Yeah. It. it uh, what was the wingspan on that? I think it was. Uh, 60 inches maybe a little bit bigger than that so mm-hmm. launching launching you know that gets to be scary because at that point now you know there's no nothing underneath it it has to be hand launched you're looking at now a much bigger prop on the back end um you know it's generally if people are launching the goblin right there's not much risk but we've seen people hit their hands with props um and uh that one yeah i would love to make it but uh i don't know if that one's ever going to happen that's uh I got a two-word review for that. Hell yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> if if yeah. if you have if you have seen people hand launching the Skywalker X8, then you are not scared of any plane anymore. <laughs> right. So yeah, um, yeah, it's uh, certain planes are just tough to launch, and the X8 is scary because of its size and how you have to hold it, and that prop hangs down really low out of the back there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
But yeah, so and, and even when it comes to the goblin, I mean, you know, we we've been having discussions on this when we do start this next batch. Sales were significantly lower on it than they used to be, so it's tough for us to say, do we make another batch? Do we not? Um, the return on investment takes forever. I know that there is a hardcore you know, group of people that absolutely love the plane. There are people that are not as popular or fond of it because of how it you know it can break uh, if you land wrong. It, it's so finicky. And I, even, I fly one myself, and it's like every, every couple of flights I've managed to pull the wings out or maybe you know crack a spar on landing just because you need so much room to land it. It just doesn't slow down, and uh, and it and it you know. If you do it right, you can get it to kind of do a stall landing and uh, kind of come in not too fast, but, uh, you know, and it's pretty stable as long as your CG is in the right place. But, you know, again, that's, it's just touchy. And then the balsa elevons, which I see you have on yours, make it that much better. That actually was, we wanted to do those out of foam that size, but it just couldn't keep the stability of the foam when we made it that long. And it's meant, it's just more efficient there, but those, we had to have, I think, a thousand of those made when we had those made by a different company that made them and uh, sold slowly. So, you know, it's like <clears throat> if we can drop the price, maybe, uh, you know, that's what seemed to push the sales of them a little bit more is when we were able to drop the price kind of at the end there, um, the last of the stock that we did have out of the last batch. Um, if we can get the manufacturing price down a little bit, maybe we'll be all right and just still do another run with we'll be able to sell them at lower price, but we'll see. Um, yeah. So um, I'm looking at, uh, if I'm looking at the sweet spot, we have always talked about this, and it always seems to me that the sweet spot is between 12, 900 millimeters and 1.2 meters as far as an FPV plane mm. is concerned. And so that seems to be, uh, which leads into one of the planes that fits perfectly in this, which is your um, ready-made RC recruit. Mm. That is uh, essentially, <clears throat> you can say it's the same thing as the AR wing, but um, that is a plane that came out, what, 2017, I'd say? That sounds about right. It's been a little while. Yeah, that sounds yeah. about right. 2017 timeframe. And really nothing else is like it in the industry. I mean, it's we've had things that are better. We've had things, a lot of things that are worse. But that is just something about that plane is so remarkable. And, um, you know, we've uh, all I wanted was that plane in 1.2 meters. And they say it's impossible to make that, you know, because of the shipping constraints. Um, well, that becomes but, a big problem, although that one being flat, I mean, it's a little easier. You, know, you have plane, the fuse, you take the fuselages combined with long wings and that's where you start getting the box sizes start going up so much. Um, but uh you know, with a flying wing, you're just basically lengthening the box when you make the wings longer. You don't have to, it doesn't have to get too big otherwise. So I don't know, we can look at that. The problem is that that, that truly is the, the, the recruit was, you know, an AR wing that we worked with the manufacturer um, to get, to integrate the, the, the launch, the stabilizer that was in it. Um, kind of, so it's kind of customized for us in that case. Um, the problem with that is that they've moved on to a new wing that it flies well but i don't i i still prefer the original design myself personally um and the stabilizer the launch setup that we have been using the manufacturer of that has always been difficult and we may not be able to get those at all now um so i'm not sure if we're going to be able to do another batch of the recruits um as oh. they are don't say that. Well, um, you don't need a stabilizer. You just put iNav in there. 
Yeah, no. So the biggest thing, so our, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, we were seeing a lot of quad people getting into planes. And one of our big reasons for that plane design or that as it came, you know, all together, recruiting people into fixed wings, we were really, really was a play on that. We were trying to get people into fixed wing and wanted to make it easier. And, you know, the, the, the easy launch was a big part of that. The little mini non-adjustable stabilizer that was in there um, worked really well and didn't cost us a whole lot to have put in there. We had to buy a large number of them, but they were pretty cheap per unit. The problem was we had zero, we have zero uh, input on being able to change settings on them. Basically, the company making them was really being weird about it and just says, we'll adjust it once up front. And you're going to get what we at that point, and that's all you're going to buy. You're not, there's no user configurable changes to it, um, even though terminal should be. But you know, whatever they 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 would they have. I don't know what other business they're in, but they don't care about this market at all to the point that they they wouldn't they don't want to hear anything. So uh, I'm not sure we can get them anymore. Even I mean, they were uh, wanting a few thousand of them for the next batch is what they're pushing for, which way more than what we would want to do in a batch of planes. Sounds like um, they're by DJI. We would, yeah, we, uh, we, would, we actually had been looking at trying to find an inexpensive um, INAV equivalent. The problem is even the least expensive boards are still more expensive. And this was being fully integrated from the factory for us from overseas, which saves a lot of effort. You know, we the whole point of it was to try to make it easy. You know, all of you guys can easily go solder a couple wires or, you know, plug in a few pins and have it ready to go in no time. But this was being targeted as more of a beginner, plug in a battery, get your radio set up and just go. Well, type of this. If this is really a recruit, that means you're getting quad guys coming over, right? Yeah, yeah. So well, they're used to soldering. I, I would say it's, it's mixed. This was mixed. We were targeting new people, not just from quads, but new people to RC in general. Right. So we, we had a big part of our sales where there were people that were new to RC that, you know, yes, it wasn't a uh, ready to fly out of the box setup, um, but we were really able to say, all right, take this radio, this receiver, plug these things in, here are your settings for a brand new person. You know, we'd literally just tell them radio, uh, receiver, battery, and charger in addition to the plane and could get a complete noob to flying at all, flying really easily. That auto launch worked really good for them. Um, and so that was really, I would say it's 50-50 between bringing quad people over and bringing just brand new people into the hobby and make, saying this is a really good starter plane. And it's so much cooler. Like there are other beginner planes out there that you can buy with radio and everything integrated, but this one looks way cooler than a lot of those. You know, yeah. flying wing just looks cooler than a lot of oh, yeah. uh, the, the trainer planes that you see out there. So the fact that it would fly like a trainer, like one of those trainer planes, but looked like something that was, and it was technically was capable of a lot more too, was was really a good draw for it. So well, what about we, the, you know, the co-pilot? Oh, yeah, the co-pilot. I, I, I hate to promote another system, especially one that runs with autopilot, but um, the co-pilot is kind of like the inexpensive little supposed to be flight controller thingy that that works and it has return to home and all these other things on it yeah we've, um, we've had mixed results with some of that stuff and it, again it adds complexity once they start adding all those other features i think it was an advantage that this thing literally was not you didn't do anything with it uh, and i think that was an advantage to these people just starting they didn't have this 
everyone wants to do the most advanced thing right away. Um, yeah. We get people that contact, and we get people that would want, you know, they never flew an RC plane ever, would come to us and be like, I want something that can fly 20 miles with return to home and, and all this stuff. And we're like, no, 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 take a step back. Yeah. But there are people that just want the most. And we, you know, this this was, and because so many, so much of our equipment can serve both sides of it, this was kind of good in that it was so limited. Like, if you want to do it more advanced, you got to pull that little flight controller out and start actually looking into what you need to get otherwise. Otherwise, this this little thing does one function. It stabilizes the plane in the, with a launch mode, either on or off, and that's it. And uh, no return to home, no none of the other stuff, which you know we've all become accustomed to figuring out and setting up and all that. But uh, it, it becomes one more thing for a new person to mess up. Well, here's my point of view on this, because, I mean, essentially watching the group who comes into the group, uh, this is about, it, about 20 to 30 percent of the people say, you know, I want to get into flying a fixed wing plane. I want to do long range FPV. You know, some of them actually start off buying this stuff, buying 2.4 meter planes and doing crazy right. things like that where, you know, uh, you're like running a marathon and you don't know how to walk yet. Um, so. Yep. It's exactly the point, but um, if people want simple and easy, uh, DGI has that market. I mean, if you want something that flies out of the box today, you can buy, spend a thousand dollars, you'll be happy with it. Uh, you get yourself a quad, and you'll, you know, you'll be flying it. If you can come into this realm, and uh, there has to be some barrier to entry, there has to be some minimal standard, which is I, I agree with that. Yeah, and we've told people time and time again. Uh, I mean, we've had a number of people who sign on and um, they're like, hey, can you give me all the PIDs so that my plane can fly? I don't want to sit here and have to work on it. Or can someone build me a plane that just ready to fly and hand me the remote and I'm ready to fly it? And our answer is no. I mean, this is, it sucks. You're going to have to learn something. You're going to have to get to a level of something you want and you cannot go out and buy it. This is something you have to earn. And you can earn all your crashes. You can learn, all, you can learn how to put your plane back together. But sooner or later, you're going to be so much better off from this because what happens is when you start to figure out how to get this done, it applies to other parts of your life. And there's just so many, you know, we're making a generation of kids who don't want to struggle. We don't, we want to make it so easy on them that they've never seen adversity before. And this is what happens. They become adults and they don't want to get to that next level. Luke is probably sitting there laughing his ass off right now. But, uh, uh, you know, he's like one of the few guys that, you know, he, he is a guy who started flying radio control planes at age five back in 2005 because he was born in 2000. Uh, but I mean, when what do you think about this, Luke? When you have to actually work up to the next level, do you actually, is that improved? Is something going to happen you, in your lifetime? I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's quite crazy that there's so many people that, like you say, haven't had any adversity uh, and are very much brought up that way now. Uh, yeah. So uh, even just, you know, uh, I do an electronic engineering degree uh, and we're quite close to the mechanical engineering guys and some have never even picked up a screwdriver and, you know, undone, tighten up bolts. It's crazy, you know, get an M3 bolt and they just strip it because they don't realise, oh, you can't just, you know, tighten it, you know, to your heart's content. It, it, and they're doing a mechanical engineering degree. So <laughs> it's, it's insane. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're at a point now where we're trying to do is, you know, I figured it would be great if you can do that, but it's not the end of the world because you just tell them if you 
you can fly this plane without a flight controller. You're going to crash it a lot more. Or if you want to get a flight controller, here's a website you can go to. Here's a group you can belong to. You can struggle. You're going to. But I would tell you, first and foremost, it's like we've seen so many people come to the group. And this is the thing. If you really pay attention to what's going on in our group, people start off with like, I can't get my first plane together. I'm having so many problems with it. I, I don't know what's up and I don't know what's down. And, you know, we're trying to talk to someone who's half a world away down off jumping from jumping off the cliff and throwing it all away and, and getting rid of this hobby. And then three months later, on, they're on their fifth plane, you know, they mm -hmm. and they love this more than anything they've ever loved in their lifetime. And it's because they had to get to the next level. But, you know, there is support, there's help, but we can only do so much for you. We can't build your planes for you. But you could ask us a million questions. We'll answer all of them, more or less, or you can tell you where to find the answers at. Um, but yeah, I, you know, to, to cancel a plane like the ready-made uh, rec RC recruit simply because you can't get a stabilizer. <clears throat> well, yeah. the the thing is that the 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 combination makes it a unique product because again, it is it is an AR wing um, yeah. coming from the same manufacturer that makes AR wing. Um, we have to justify a batch now since they've moved on to the newer AR wing. If we wanted to make the same one, that this would be solely for us. Where before we were able to ride off of one of their manufacturing runs when it comes to the quantities of molded planes. The the newer AR wing is nice. I do like it, but I don't feel that it's the same. Um, and uh, uh, I don't know what you guys think about that. But uh, um, are you talking about the pro? Or are you talking just the AR? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It, the, the pro we you know ours was the original the classic plane the the recruit was based off of that airframe um so we have to differentiate it from that a little bit too right um in addition to some of the other stuff that we made sure we were with it i mean it was we have to make it different otherwise we're, we're fighting with them on price point too and again if they're shipping directly from china versus uh you know us shipping from the us we had to pay to get them over to us and everything um so yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that we're not going to do it. Um, it's just that it's a little bit harder to justify another batch. The sales had slowed on it compared to what they used to be. Um, and because of these other alternatives, when there's a pro version, people will go for the pro just because it says pro without necessarily uh, understanding why. So have, have, you, have you guys flown the pro? Have any of you guys flown the Airwing Pro? Mark has a hand up like that an hour ago so he's mr ar pro so he'll tell you about it yeah so uh so sorry i didn't listen i wasn't in the chat right now uh what was the question <laughs> well the ar so, pro he's asking ask about it how is it good because that's your thoughts compared to the original ar wing too um that, that that that's a hot question actually um in my opinion the ar pro the name is a little bit misleading because it's not really a successor of the ar wing but it's more a uh, more specialized model um because the ar pro is built as a uh as a i would say speed cruiser and for long range because it has so much more uh, surface area, wing area, and it can carry so much weight. I mean, compared to the old AR wing that was maxed out at around maybe one kilogram, uh, more than one kilogram was was already critical to get it fly or to uh, have still a reasonable uh, stall speed. And the AR Pro just with 10 centimeter more wingspan, but the whole lifting body design and the uh, deeper wings uh, you can load that thing up with 1 1.5 1 1.6 kilograms with these and it still flies 
um, it's it's made more like uh, for a lo as a long range plane. It's a, it's a pure long range platform or a speed cruiser, not that acrobatic than the old one. So if you want to, ha I think the old one is more universal. It's a, it's a more versatile plane. You can do m m much more stuff and some stuff even better than with the Pro. I think that you, it's a good point. That's actually one of the reasons we had uh, looked at that and kind of said it didn't really, for us as a recruit, didn't make a good successor either because of it being a, a higher speed design. It definitely is meant to fly faster uh, than the original recruit. And I would agree that it's not, it's not really, I, whenever uh, that manufacturer said, here, we have this new air wing pro or like that, or it uh, doesn't look like the same plane at all. Why are you, uh, you know, why are you calling it the same? They're just trying to build yeah. off the, the name. Um, I would agree that the original AR wing is much better for slower flying and probably more, yeah, more aerobatic, if you want to call it that flying. It's definitely not meant for higher speed or longer range in the same way, at least. Um, I mean, if so, you, if so because that manufacturer has moved on, again, if we want to get, uh, we want to get that one made as a recruit again, we have to, it's all on us. And uh, the whole, we have to have a whole batch of much larger batch made than we would, we've done previously. So, yeah. So there's and two kind of two aspects to that, the controller and that. So. Yeah, sure. And the, uh, and the old AR ring was partially pre-assembled already. So you have like the wooden parts <laughs> and the, uh, yeah. uh, the, 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 uh, some carbon parts, wood parts, mm -hmm. everything already glued in or already molded in. And now they made the AR wing classic that's even cheaper than the uh, previous version or it's oh, meant right, to be right, right. cheaper. Uh, but you have nothing pre-assembled. So purely directly the... out of the mold into the packaging. <clears throat> so you, you, you have to glue in the wooden stuff. You have to glue in the uh, uh, inside the servo horns yourself, everything just to get it a little bit cheaper. And of course, if you want to have uh, an, a new recruit version, uh, you, you either have to assemble them yourself in right. the USA or uh, they have to start a new production line again for that. And that's, and I, you know, again, I try to recall back as we, you know, we did all these, that was another thing that we differentiated with our uh, recruit is that, yeah, we, we had it more assembled so that essentially it was thumb screws to put it together. Right. And then you know, stick in your, uh, um, so <clears throat> things like that. And it's interesting. The, some of these manufacturers of planes, they really lately have been pushing for wanting to just do kits, um, they, they've been trying to get away from the labor intensive aspect of uh, of assembling for us. So the plug and huh. plays and stuff. And I think I mean, it's the, because, you the, know, the, because the, of the amount of labor it takes, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of labor. Yeah, I mean, the Pro already comes only as a kit. Even if you buy right. the plug and play version, uh, you have to glue in the servos, yeah. you have to glue in right. the carbon in the uh, elevons. Uh, there's nothing pre-assembled already. The they only don't, thing they that's... don't understand plug and play very well lately. I, I noticed. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah. I think the only thing that's already pre-assembled is the uh, the wooden parts inside the rings where the uh, thumb screws goes go in because they are molded with uh, with the ring <clears throat> together. Right. So, God, that's, um, yeah, I, well, the thing that I look at, like, for example, yesterday, somebody, uh, one of our moderators starts messaging me and like, there's a plane that, uh, let's just say that the marketing gal in our group decided to like start sending uh, messages every other day talking about this plane. And it's like the ugliest plane I've ever seen in my life. And, um, 
it's not selling. So Banggood was closing this out. I had this significant discount on it, which was unbelievable. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, for what you can get for this much money, this is insane. This is a great deal. And I thought, you know what? What's um, the air loader? What, <laughs> uh, uh, worse than, <laughs> no, the air loader still, <laughs> no, it was the killer whale. I shouldn't say it, but yeah, it was a killer whale. It, uh, it's like bang of the United States is blowing that thing out right now and shipping from the United States. Um, but I looked at it and I'd say, Here's the problem. It's the same problem I see with Horizon Hobby, which is you can buy it today, but if you break a tail on this thing and six months from now, you're not going to find it anymore. It's it, This is going to be, it's going to go away. Horizon Hobby is famous for that. Their planes, uh, they make a number of planes that are just, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, it's just great. A perfect one, the Radiant, probably one of the most perfect planes ever made. That thing is on probably its, its fifth life right now. And now you can't, if, if you break a fuselage on that thing, well, good luck finding a replacement one if it's more than three years old because they don't supply the parts anymore. And so that's the nice thing I could say about the AR wing is that you can actually buy parts for it. And that would be the one thing I'd suggest is just start buying, selling all the parts for these things. So I mean, that brings up something really interesting. We always get a lot of requests for parts on planes. And uh, one of the things that, I, you know, no one really has a need to understand or even know is that you know when we when we pop out a, a run of planes a hit on the mold is a hit of every single part on the plane so they whenever they mold a plane they're molding every single major foam component is molded at one time so and what we'll find if we try to sell parts is that there'll be like one or two parts that people will need to replace a lot of right but they don't need other parts. The problem is the manufacturers refuse to mold partial planes. They will mold, mold the whole thing in one shot. So essentially what we, you know, if we order a thousand planes, for a lot of them, we do break them apart into parts, um, but that just means that we've taken X number of planes and just have broken them into separate components. So um, it puts us in a weird financial issue where by offering just the parts, we maybe don't we wind up with an excess of parts that sit there that we so then we then we're like well we need to purchase a little bit more to justify it because they cost us this much to make each yeah, plane so hit. Air, so air wing is a little bit less because there's not as many parts with it but you know it's you know it's true across the board that whole plane is molded in one shot so if someone needs to replace say the fuselages um that means that there are wings that are sitting there that you know need a home um so so uh, you know we we always were kind of met with this weird decision point where we say do we make can we can we make the kits the base kits cheap enough that people would just purchase that for the spare parts without yeah. hurting ourselves but then the problem is then you know we have to make enough to justify the batch and everything you know or do we make the parts expensive enough that people have a little bit more of a call of Maybe I'll just buy the kit instead because I yeah. get everything. You know, it, it, it's a really tough thing. And, I, and some people are like, you never have parts for things like we try, but it's it's tough. on, And it, it varies depending on the airframe, um, you know, especially ones that only certain parts are the ones getting replaced. And it's so the, 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 the canopy, the, the canopy on the Nano Goblin. Yeah. Um, people want those things. But literally, we make the entire plane to get a canopy. So, um, <laughs> um, 
so yeah, so we wound up, we treat, you know, we do 3D printed occasionally, but they're way heavier. I mean, we can't make those as light. Um, you know, we try to gather and, you know, again, so that, and that's why I think sometimes people question, why are these parts more expensive or so expensive? And part of it is because we have to kind of take into account, it's really a whole plane that we're only going to sell these couple little tiny things from. And, you know, very few people are going to buy a fuselage from a nano goblin, for example, or even wings, honestly, it's the, 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 the tails and the canopy are the two things that people generally need to replace on those. And our manufacturers will flat out, they can, Technically, they could block off parts of the mold, and make, but they don't want to bother with that. It's just, you know, it's not worth it for them for the small amount of money that they would get on some of those parts. So it's it's a tough uh, balancing act for us. Um, but that puts us, you know, as the hobbyists in kind of a, a bad light as well, because, you know, when you land a plane and you're missing a winglet on your air wing or yep. recruit, yep. you're like, I get it. Damn, you know, I got it. And that's why we... Yeah, and that's why we went ahead and split them into parts a lot of times uh, because we understand that too. We fly too, you know, and it's easier with, you know, if it's, for example, just a regular plastic part versus the the foam parts. I mean, obviously those are done in separate molds, so those could be done in different amounts. Um, but when it comes to foam parts, they're all, that whole plane is molded in one shot in the mold. So, um, oh, you know, see, yeah. Yeah. how it goes together and you just yeah. can't mold the winglets by themselves. Right, right. And, uh, and we've we've considered, um, you know, as we've looked at getting planes made of having trying to look at it ahead of time and maybe having uh, extra parts made as part of the main uh, plane mold. But that has a different problem in that if we have a thousand plane made planes made, that may mean now that we have a full thousand of this one particular spare part, uh, you know, that's now going to be there now how much it affects the cost it's hard to judge you know it depends on the plane and the size of the part and everything but you can also 3d print a lot of these things and that's so what we try to we made three files for the nano album for example and for some of the other things we've either made or shared or helped you know shared other people's designs with 3d prints so that uh, uh they can easily churn out a part that's at least pretty darn close to the original so yeah, I get it. You know, and, and Horizon, they you know they have a whole different issue where they are trying to make profit, but also selling to hobby stores. So they 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 need massive margins. Like compared to what we are able to get, uh, you know, they they want to make money and they want to sell to hobby stores and have the hobby stores make money. We had tried to sell a couple of our planes to them, and uh, they wanted such a massive margin. We we would have had to have increased our retail price. To even have any remote chance of giving them a margin that they were hoping to get, and it's crazy margin for this industry, and it's kind of I look at it as almost old-fashioned because now that we're competing with Chinese companies directly, those kind of margins are hard to get. And uh, you know, so, yeah. Well, I yeah. tell you what, we are now at the what, two hour and twenty five minute mark. Oops. Oh wow. Yeah, I know we got going on this pretty well, so um, I think we're probably going to have to cut it off here because people are falling asleep, but Darren's looks like he, he just had his monthly bath and he's like ready to go to bed. refreshing. Seriously, Tim, this has been so awesome having you as a guest, man. This is like, this is everything we hope for and more. I mean, thank you for being, you know, like telling us what's really going on in the industry because... We're all sitting around trying to figure out what the hell's going on, and you know we're getting kind of the happy talk from some people, but not real straightforward. 
ask a question, get an answer, and you gave us the answers, and we certainly appreciate that. Plus, we really appreciate your insight as to what how this all came about and where we're at for how we got here. And the future looks like, the well, one thing I will say is like, the benefit of me having a little bit of gray hair coming in, maybe you having a little bit of gray hair coming in, yeah, is that um, at some point in your life, you sit there and you go, I've seen this movie before. And, you know, you kind of seen problems like this come along and you realize that, yeah, the problems of today don't last forever and things get better uh, down the road. So, you know, we, it looks like there's still so much going on. This is, it seems like this hobby is firing on all cylinders right now, other than the supply chain issues that, um, what do you think of the future looks like? I do think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I feel like, uh, you know, we've been through some trials. It's, uh, it's, it's been a roller coaster in this ho hobby. And, um, so, and, and actually I've always said there's this, uh, there's this kind of tech trend of new technology where there's this interest in a, in a huge rise in interest. And then it kind of wanes down and drops down and then it kind of comes up to a steady state. I actually feel like, uh, um, you know, we peaked that that rise was probably around 215, 200 or 2015, 2016, um, where we had kind of peak interest in FPV overall with drones and everything kind of waned a bit. And I feel like we've kind of now we're in this coming back into this more steady state of the of the industry. Um, you know, it's we're past the hype uh, phase and now into the you know everyone's doing their little fine tuning of things and making you know their their own thing so and that makes me optimistic because there's a drop before that you know a, a kind of a, a low point before that and I feel like uh, we're now past that low point and uh, COVID has added a bit to that but uh, you know regardless we want to get out and fly right so you know you know it doesn't matter what's, what else is going on we don't have to fly with groups of people if we don't want to so um you know, let's get out there and do stuff, right? Awesome. Well, that's a great way to end the show. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Wing Talk. The webcast is live the third Sunday of every month, and this podcast follows shortly afterwards. Check out inavfixedwingroup.com for more details.